Can you feel the way you did in your seventh ceremony while facilitating having that intensity and still be able to function more or less? Yes, you can. And so that's part of the teaching. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. If you were lucky enough to hear episode 175 with Carly Stein, then you're going to perfectly understand why I'm so excited to tell you about Beekeepers Naturals, the best bee product company in the world. If you missed 175, I'm going to encourage you right now to go back and check it out. Now, I've been into bee products for a long time. I take propolis, the bee pollen, the honey, the royal jelly, all of that. But it's kind of a guessing game when you go to the health food store to figure out which one's the best, which one's really organic. Does that even mean anything? Turns out not so much in many cases. But when it comes to a company like Beekeepers Naturals, you know that you are getting the most pure and most potent bee products on the planet and that the bees are being protected and taken care of. Now, a lot of people just use bees for their amazing products and kind of abuse them, to be honest, not to get crazy here. I mean, I know it's only a little bee, but they're a crucial part of our entire ecology on planet Earth. So not only taking from the bees is important, but giving back to the bees is equally as important. And Beekeepers Naturals does that. But more than anything, just straight up, they make the best tasting and the most powerful bee products on the market. So I'd really love for you to get over there and check them out. You can find them at beekeepersnaturals.com. That's beekeepersnaturals.com. If you use the code LIFESTYLIST, you will save 20% off your order. If you're just starting out over there and you don't know what to get, I'm going to uh, recommend that you try Bee Powered because that's got all of the superfoods from the hive in one jar. It's delicious. It's super potent. And I'm on this stuff uh, almost every day. I can't have it every day because then I go through a jar in like four days because I'm just nuts like that. But this stuff is just absolutely insanely powerful and pure and it's tested for pesticides and toxins. It's clean, it's legit. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, use the code LIFESTYLIST to save 15%. I've been working on my health for a long time, really dialing in the diet, the lifestyle, the whole thing. And one of the toughest hurdles for me to get over has been my gut health digestion issues, heartburn, constipation. I don't want to get too graphic here, but it's like the missing link for me until I found Just Thrive Probiotic, that is. And that's why I'm so happy to share them with you as our sponsor today. These guys make a probiotic that actually works. It's got 100% survivability. It's vegan, non-GMO, soy-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, salt-free, nut-free, gluten-free, crappy-free. It's awesome. It's clinically proven for leaky gut, and they have nine other ongoing human clinical trials. It's a really powerful way to support your immune system and your brain because your brain depends on the health of your gut and the neurotransmitters that your gut produces. So if you want to get rid of that uncomfortable bloating, embarrassing gas, leaky gut, all those issues that so many of us suffer from, you definitely want to get over to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. That's thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. 
course, we've got a hookup for you. If you use the code LUKE15, you're going to save 15% off your entire order. That's thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. Check it out and have some happy digestion. My fellow galactic travelers, welcome to episode 263, part two of Jungle Journeys, my ayahuasca awakening at Soltara. Now listen, if you haven't heard part one yet, pause this episode. You don't want to cheat on this. Trust me. It's a, you know, it's a narrative, right? You want to follow it. Scroll back to episode 262, which also came out today, which is part one of this series for the complete experience, which began the moment I arrived in Costa Rica. Now, this episode, part two, covers my last two days at Soltara Healing Center, including my fourth and probably most profoundly moving ayahuasca ceremony and a recap on what's happened in the past month since I got home, wherein I've had time to integrate the whole trip as well as follow it up randomly with three peyote ceremonies, about which I will, of course, be covering on a future podcast episode. This Friday, you're going to be very interested to know if you're into such things that I'll be dropping a bonus show, Choosing Your Ayahuasca Adventure, Rhythmia and Soltara Side-by-Side Comparison. And the spoiler alert on the comparison show that comes out Friday is that both centers are absolutely incredible and it's impossible to pick one over the other. But due to popular demand, I'm going to give you a very detailed account of what makes them each uniquely amazing. So you can tune in on Friday for that. Then Tuesday, I'll be back with a regular interview show Soulmate GPS, finding the love you want without losing yourself with three-time and very popular guest here, Mr. John Wineland. So that's what's happening with that. I'd also like to uh, encourage you to go back and listen to my Rhythmia trilogy series entitled Welcome to the Jungle, My Ayahuasca Journey at Rhythmia, which were episodes 202 and 203, respectively, that came out in early 2019 and documented in the same way as this double episode, Uh, my first trip to Costa Rica and my first four ceremonies uh, drinking ayahuasca. That strangely nasty but beautiful brew that you're about to hear all about. Make sure to follow me on Instagram to get all the behind the scenes action like this one. In fact, if you are following me on Instagram right now, you could be watching me record this very intro. It's something I do a lot to keep myself and maybe a couple of other people entertained. But I also live stream all of my interviews and do a lot of fun stuff. And uh, I find Instagram to be my preferred social media channel of choice. So follow me at Luke Story, L-U-K-E-S-T-O-R-E-Y. Now, before we enter into this cosmic vortex of an episode, I feel it my responsibility to uh, give a disclaimer, as I tend to do with uh, things that are a bit fringe, like psychedelics and plant medicines, etc., I uh, absolutely do not recommend that everyone just jumps into a plant medicine ceremony or does other various types of psychedelics. It's something you really want to give some careful consideration to. You want to make sure that you're in a safe place with safe people that know what they're doing in terms of who's guiding you. You want the experiences to benefit you and not be uh, deleterious to your mental health or your future framing of the universe. Because I'll tell you what, based on my experiences many, many years ago with things like psilocybin and LSD, uh, once you get into this world, things are never quite the same. And set and setting is so important, as are the traditions and practices of the peoples that have brought these medicines forward through time and space to bring us where we are now. 
So be careful out there, kids. This is not something you want to take lightly. And I am not here to be a promoter of uh, plant medicine, psychedelics, etc. I'm simply documenting my own personal experience uh, of healing and expansion. And if that appeals to you, then uh, you've got a head start on doing some research based on what I've discovered. That being said, let's blast into part two of this uh, double episode featuring my journey summary, as well as my field reports on the last ceremony, as well as an interview with Daniel Cleland, the co-founder of Soltara and their lead facilitator, Todd Michael Roberts. I hope you enjoy this journey as much as I enjoyed mine. Don't forget to share this episode with a friend and I will see you on the other side. We're now preparing for liftoff on day seven, ceremony four of four. Here's a recap of last night's ceremony number three. I went in uh, with the intention of (laughs) getting the dose right as the night before was perhaps a little too much and the night before perhaps a little too little. However, that said, as I've reported before, it's not really about the right amount. It's about the amount that is supposed to be there. And seeing that in myself, I really set my intention to come from a place of surrender and trust in the process last night because I could see how, like many things in my life, I wanted to control it and I wanted to have an intense experience but not be sick and not too subtle and not too that. And so I really had to work with that and tuning into my inner voice and intuition to give myself because you sort of are having agency over how much ayahuasca you drink in this particular tradition Uh, giving myself the agency over that meant that i really had to tune in and not get too greedy and too hungry for a really intense experience and not be too apprehensive about having too gentle of an experience so i had a probably maybe a little over a half cup for the first cup and uh, and just went to my mat and just went into deep prayer. And at one point started for the first time really speaking to the medicine in the singular by the name of Uni, which is a name uh, that the medicine is given in this particular tradition. And I've never been a guy that's like, oh, I'm talking to Mother Aya. And no offense if that's your vibe with <laughs> ayahuasca. It's just, it's never felt authentic for me to like relate to it in that way as like a female entity or energy to me it's usually more like you guys it's like a bunch of folks it's these energies that are sort of in that interdimensional space that the medicine takes me to and i get the sense that there's multiple energies in there all falling under the umbrella of the god the godhead which is the context wherein the medicine and those energies and those dimensions and myself, mind, body, and spirit all exist. And so I was sort of moving between praying to my God in the most broad sense, the macro, I guess you could say, to then just getting really zeroed in and very focused. It was a really focused, deep meditation, but it was also very relaxed and passive and just letting go and a a sense of allowing rather than pushing, right? And 
as I was speaking to the medicine, just saying, hey, I trust you, I'm here, like whatever is supposed to happen, I'm good with, just guide me, show me what to ask, show me the answers, show me what to do. And then also just really, not only surrendering to the medicine and to the experience, but just once again, just in my life, in the greater scheme of things, just knowing and trusting that there is a plan and there is order to the universe and that what I need is not always represented as what I want. And so the ceremony is indicative of that greater truth. So what I want in the ceremony is what I just described, a super intense experience in which I don't puke, <laughs> you know what I mean? And have these groundbreaking revelations. And in my life, I have a lot of things I want too. And many of those wants are valid and were given to me by creation. And so they're not bad wants, whether that's something in a career or relationship or finance or artistic endeavor or any kind of success or accomplishment or achievement or anything that I might hope to create in the world or things that I hope to heal from. And so in the context of that trusting and surrendering, I was taken, as the medicine started to come on for the first cup, which is the first time that's ever happened to me. That would have been my seventh ceremony uh, total in life. And the first cup is always just, I kind of just take a nap and just sort of meditate and wait till the second serving because I know that after that happens, typically I'm going to be taken somewhere. And this time it started to really come on with like this flickering sort of white light. And, and then I thought, oh, interesting. And then the maestros started singing. And again, all this takes a really long time. There's a lot of silence and just waiting. The Tom Petty song, the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> that song kept popping into my head, which is hilarious. And that kind of helped me ease into it too, because I, I think of really funny, at least they're funny to me. Um, it doesn't seem as hilarious now, but when you're on the medicine, like funny little things that are completely out of left field will pop in your awareness and it's just, you know, I'll laugh out loud and then it sets up this chain reaction of other people giggling and stuff. It's funny, but I was like, oh man, word up, Tom. Thank you. The waiting is the hardest part, but last night it was not. The waiting was beautiful. It was absolutely uh, just sublime in the stillness and the quiet. And then as the Icarus started, started the songs um, sung by the maestros. Then it started to sort of come on and I went into this experience of just kind of my heart cracking open and there were tears and not in an unpleasant way, but just, just seeing different things throughout my life. And I reflected back to a moment that I shared with my dad a couple years ago that was just really moving and profound where he was sort of just validating me um, as a man and telling me how capable I am of um, essentially having my own family and a beautiful, healthy relationship and a home. And, you know, it was just like a message from God through my dad. He was just looking at me and I don't remember his exact words, but the message conveyed was like, Luke, you can have that. And for some reason it just hit me because I've often felt like that is perhaps not in the cards for me because it's not something that I've ever been incredibly desirous of, at least not on a conscious level, and not something that I've worked very hard toward manifesting until the last three or four years. And um, I, don't, I was about to say, I'm really watching my language these days. I was about to say I haven't been successful in that, but um, I have been successful in growing and learning a lot to that end. So, um, But sometimes I feel as though I've kind of missed the boat or failed in that area. Uh, 
maybe because of my age and things like that. But the fact is in my teens and 20s, I was just a raving lunatic and could give a shit about any of that because I was masking and numbing the, <laughs> the truth that I didn't really experience a lot of that sense of being at home or, or family growing up. I left home at 14 and never really went back. And so um, there were times in my childhood where there was a Christmas or Thanksgiving and grandmothers around. And, you know, it wasn't like all disjointed, but I had divorced parents and, you know, just, I was just a kind of a rough time of it growing up. So um, I was kind of running from that. And then once I started to find myself and I got sober when I was 26, then I was just about my career and having fun and just being free because I had been set free from this very oppressive bondage of just acute nonstop addiction for so many years. And so, you know, having a sense of home or belonging or family in that way was not something that I focused on. I focused on my spiritual growth and meditation and travel and all kinds of other things. So I was reflecting on my dad telling me and I just started crying and I was like, God, what a beautiful message that was. And I believed him in that moment, you know? Um, And so I started just really looking in and asking, there was a lot of inquiry asking these questions of God and of the medicine, you know, what, what is it that I'm feeling this yearning for? Because I've always had this underlying sense of existential aloneness and even oftentimes being around people, I still kind of experience that. And oddly enough, one of the times I don't experience that is when I'm recording a podcast interview, which is probably one of the reasons that I keep cranking it because I have this profound sense of connection most of the time when I talk to someone um, in that capacity. I don't, I don't know why that is. If there's a microphone on, like even if I've just met the person, I feel this level of intimacy and authenticity in most of those interactions. But since I was very young, I did sort of have this feeling as though I was dropped off on the wrong planet and I just didn't quite fit or that there wasn't a safe rallying point for me where I just felt taken care of and held, you know? And so last night in that experience, it was like I was sort of in the womb of the medicine and I I was trying to find a word for that that dimension or this grid or matrix that the medicine takes you into where you, you have this relationship with it and this direct communion with God and your higher self and where the answers come from and who you're talking to, I'm, I'm learning, doesn't really matter. It's like, there's no sense trying to figure it out. It's, it's all of that. It's not, oh, am I talking to God or the medicine? Is the medicine real? Can you talk to it? Am I talking to angels, guides? It doesn't matter. All I know is the answers come back and they come back ringing very true. And so as I, I, was, I was in that space and sort of asking, you know, what is this? Is it, is it a family? Is that what, like, is that what I need to have in order to feel that sense of belonging and uh, a sense of safety and security and a sense of warmth and not aloneness. And then I kind of bounced that, you know, is it like a wife and kids? Is that like, is that what I've been missing this whole time or something, you know? And because um, I've not had those things. And, and it was like, no, that wasn't it. And I sort of waited and waited. And then it said, what you're missing is a home. And I thought, well, I have a home. I live in Laurel Canyon. It's quite nice and I'm happy there. And it's like, no, that's more like home is where the heart is. You know, it's like coming in your house and being cozy. And I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't feel when I'm at home that I'm at home. I feel like I'm in my house. And it's nice. And 
you know, I'll light an incense, put on some tunes, you know, <laughs> get up, make some coffee, put on the Grateful Dead. I, I feel, oh, this is cool. I have my little Zen den in the backyard, my ice bath. I got my groove on, you know, and it's, it's, I'm very grateful to have the house that I have. But I don't often feel a sense of like hominess, even with my dog there. Or if I've had been in a relationship living there, I think more so in that case, but still a sense of like, hmm, I don't know. I don't feel quite grounded and rested within this. And I'm just being very real and open and vulnerable right here because why, why do it any other way? So the answer wasn't family. The answer wasn't home in the sense of your house. It wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't that home is where the heart is. I was like, is it that? Is it through, is this, I need to put my heart in my house? Like what, what, you know, where are we going here? And it's, you know, it's really hard to explain these things because they happen in this ethereal, non-linear way that is really to be honest, indescribable. And when I'm having these experiences under the influence of the medicine, it's like I see the folly of the next day trying to explain what happened because it just pales in comparison of the depth of realization that I'm able to experience. And so I'll be sitting there laughing like, oh my God, stupid podcast. Like you can't explain this, but here I am doing my best to put words to it. So the words that came to me in that moment, what felt like the answer was not home is where the heart is, but rather, Luke, heart is where the home is. And it just hit me so hard. It was like a ton of love bricks <laughs> falling on me. And I just sank into the mat. And I was like, oh, heart is where the home is, like capital T, capital H. And then it was your heart is where your home is. And that feeling of separation or isolation takes place when you leave your heart. Literally like just energizing and staying in my heart, which is, I think, easier for me to do than some males that I know uh, because I do have uh, re readily available access to my emotions and my senses. I have very high empathy. So I, you know, I'm able to like feel other people and where they are and what they've been through. And it's just kind of a gift that I was given. And so it's not like I feel disconnected from my heart in the sense that I, you know, un am unable to experience or express emotion or something like that at all, because I can do that quite easily, sometimes to a fault, perhaps. <laughs> um, but I do also kind of get up in my head and want to distract myself from my thoughts. And so maybe sometimes when I'm alone, I find other ways to run, like just chugging a bunch of supplements or just doing all the biohacks or just being on social media, working. I have my escape routes intact, which is sometimes harder to bear witness to, and not that there's anything wrong with escaping in one way or another, but it's harder to bear witness to those ways of avoiding facing that aloneness or facing thoughts that might be painful or uncomfortable because most of the things that I do to avoid are quite productive and healthy, you know? So it's a really funny observation to have. 
But what I loved about that particular answer was that it's a tangible, applicable truth that I can take with me. So when I have that sense of I'm alone, maybe I need people. And of course you need people and I do need people. I, I need love and I need people around and affection and sex and relating and intimacy and all of those things with all people that are, you know, um, oh, available for that and trustworthy with that. But that thing outside of me being reflected back to me doesn't give me or anyone, I believe, the sense of truly being at home with oneself and one's higher power, I guess you could say. And so looking out uh, today, we had an integration you know, lesson or meeting that was great. It was all about like, how do you take this with you? And I felt so honored by the experience that I have something very tangible that I can take with me. And that is to stay in my heart and to just feel in there and, and fulfill that within myself, which I have the sense is going to render me less susceptible to feeling needy or not being discerning and prudent about with whom and in which ways I spend time with people. And so that's very empowering to know that I have what I need, that home, that sense of family, as it were, within myself. And I have the feeling that when that's really owned and embodied, that that's the fertile ground by which to manifest that family in however it chooses to show up. Meaning it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a set of triplets and, you know, a wife and a mistress <laughs> or whatever. You, you can picture in a giant family. I don't know where the mistress came from. Ignore that part. I'm just thinking of like, you know, getting all of your needs met and you have all these people around doing all the things and grandmas and, you know, that sense of family that I didn't experience much of for very long. But it's, it's, it's not about getting it from there. But if I have that within myself, then relationships of all types can be there to whatever degree of intimacy there is appropriate for them. And I won't be looking to them to fulfill something within myself. And that's, that's a really potent realization. And that sort of happened in the first segment, the first cup. And then it started to really wear off. And I got up and went to the bathroom and I felt stone cold sober after that. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not done. Like, this is dope. I want, I want more of this. You know, that realization was massive and beautiful. And there was so much healing in that on so many levels. And I thought, oh man, don't get greedy, Luke. Don't do like another half cup or a full cup. You know, you're going to get toasted and just be sick all night. And I didn't want that to happen. So I went and I watched... Todd, the facilitator, pour. And I said, I think I want about a quarter. And he was pouring it out of the bottle into the little shot glass very slow. And I was like, right there. And I called that spot. And then I took it. And I had the thought like, oh, man, that wasn't enough. Shit. Oh, well. And I went and sat down. And then I started obsessing again on like, I don't know. I'm not feeling it now. Like, is the second wave going to happen? Oh, shit. I took too little. And then even at one point, I got up and asked... Um, one of the other facilitators, Jocelyn, who both of them are just amazing, by the way, just wonderful people and very skilled and very present for the experience with us, very supportive energetically and verbally, physically in every way. And I asked her and she was like, oh, I think it's a little too late, Luke. I was like, fuck, God damn it. And I sat down, I was like, again, I 
fucked up the dosing, you know, which is what I felt like happened the first night. And then I saw my control issues coming in. I, you know, I want this experience to be how I want it. I'm not trusting in God. I'm not trusting in the process. And these are just micro uh, moments of awareness. You know, it's not like I'm really tripping out or bombed. It's just like, I saw my mind just kind of going back to, ah, shit, how can I fix this? That kind of thing. And I thought about, you know, just how, when I take all my supplements, I'm always trying to find like the right amount of energy without being too overactive or too stimulated and I want to do take stuff to relax but not be tired and I'm like god I've spent so much time really trying to control my experience in life and again not to say that that's bad um, it's definitely much less pathological I think if one has awareness of these tendencies because then you find some way to temper that as you live your life so I can see with that awareness now for example that I'll probably be a little less prone to being so obsessive about all of my little rituals and things like that that I use to monitor and manage my felt sense of being on a daily basis. So there was a lot of letting go of control in general, and I could really see that this medicine, the energy of this plant, the molecules of these plants, rather, uh, is in control and spirit is in control. God is in control and it is absolutely stone cold futile to try to wrangle in this experience and tame it to be what you want it to be. That was the message that I got. And in that surrender, I laid down uh, on my stomach, I remember, and within minutes, the weight of gravity just became so immense. I don't think I could have moved if the, you know, the building was on fire. It's just like, I felt like made of stone, just pressed into the mat. It wasn't entirely uncomfortable. It was just, it was honestly, I think it was just a realization of how powerful gravity is. This thing that keeps us stuck to the surface of the earth or stuck to your mat number 13 in my case. And as I went into that and just really relaxed, I started seeing some other things and asking some more questions and some more answers. And I don't remember all of it and it wouldn't be doing you or anyone a service to try to get into the minutia of it. But the general gist was that sometimes when you're relating with others, I think because I have that, it's not a view or a belief. It's I have a knowing that when I look in someone's eyes, I'm seeing multiple lifetimes. I'm seeing them from the second they were born. I'm seeing them at 10 years old, 23 years old, 35 years old. I'm seeing them in the moment right there. And I also see their mind. I see their ego. I see their trauma. I see a lot. I just feel into people. I don't know why, but I'm just that way. And so I was thinking about it at different times in my life. I've I don't know. It's how to explain it exactly. It's just, I think I've put myself in situations at times that were mm, painful or that didn't perhaps serve me or others because I'm able to ignore a lot of the noise in relationships with other people that's not them because I know the difference between who I am truly as a spirit, as a soul and who my ego and mind and all of my faults and mind games and all of the sort of 
sometimes negative aspects of personality or just resultant behavior patterns based on past experiences or trauma. So I'm working through that stuff for so many years on my own that when I meet someone, I really, I can see that. I see pain in people. I see hurt in people, not in like a psychic sense or something like that. I'm not, it's not a crystal ball thing. It's just, I don't know. I just feel people on a deep level, especially when I look in their eyes. And so I thought, well, you know, if I can see their soul, then, you know, why, why would I ever end up in situations that, you know, don't serve me because I'm seeing like who that person is. And then, and this is, you know, business relationships, romantic relationships, just throughout my life, even just with, I don't know, people in my family and all kinds of different things. It's like, I've stuck around for things that weren't supportive of my well-being in many cases, because I can see that it's not that person's fault that they're misbehaving or um, treating me poorly or something like that. They're just, they're just hurt and hurt people hurt people. And I know that. So I know it's not them. I think I have a really easy time having a deep sense of forgiveness for others, which is a great quality to have. And it's wonderful to not walk around resenting people. But because I have that, I think at times I've given paths to behaviors that I probably shouldn't. And so the answer that I got there, if there was a question, was, yes, Luke, see the soul, but also see the whole, as in W-H-O-L-E. See the soul, yeah, but also see the whole. In other words, see the whole of that entity's expression including shadow. In other words, don't naively just see someone's soul and think that eventually they're going to evolve into a full embodiment of that. Well, eventually I'm sure they will because I think we're all destined for enlightenment sooner or later, but it might not be in this goddamn lifetime and and I plan on having mine pretty soon. (laughs) It's kind of in process. And so seeing the whole is just not being judgmental or critical of others, but just not ignoring some of those things that could be present um, and being being aware of those and being honest with myself about those aspects of other people that we interact with. And then it was also, yes, see the soul, but also see the whole as in H-O-L-E. You dirty bastards know what you're thinking of. No, not that. It's like see the hole in the wound, you know? see the scar, see the soul, but also see the scar. And there's different elements of that ability and that practice. One is, of course, being able to have that forgiveness and compassion because you see that if someone's wounding you, it's a direct result in most cases of them being wounded by someone or something at some time. But it's not wise to just ignore the whole picture or the holes in their auric field, I guess you could say. So... That was really good medicine for me. That was a good, a good lesson for me. And it all ties into that, you know, surrendering what I want and what I think and how I want to do things to a higher intelligence, to a higher order of magnitude that can give me the discernment about the choices and decisions that I make in life. And so it was a very empowering and also just a self-valuing, self-love experience where I just got the sense that I'm, I'm responsible for myself. I'm not a victim. I, I have to be wise in 
in my choices, in my endeavors. And where that wisdom is going to come from is between that heart and that heart connection, being at home in that heart and that heart connection to source, to God, to spirit. And I have that a lot, but I still find that sometimes I get lost in my head or in naivete. I think that's the, that's the thing that I'm seeing. I've, I've gotten duped, you know, even in business and things like that. Like I've just been kind of gullible at times because I, I just see the good and see the purity. And I'm not trying to sound like a saint or anything. It's just, it's honestly the truth. But trust me, I can be a complete dick too. <laughs> you know, like I, I have plenty of shadow, but I have, I have worked on, you know, selfishness and all of those, you know, resentment and hostility and just so many of those kind of easier to spot and remedy negative aspects of self or ego. So now I'm finding subtle things that could use some degree of evolution. So it's just like, man, take care of yourself, Luke. You're, you deserve the best of the best. And if you stay home within yourself, you'll be able to better determine what that is. After that began to subside and the maestros came and sang the individual ikaros to us, mine were of course both just beautiful, and they go back into the center on their little mats out there and then there's some silence and it's just this incredible stillness as I said in the room, it's palpable and it's really impossible to explain because the sounds of the jungle and you know, you're sort of, when you're in ayahuasca zone, it's like, whoosh, whoosh, everything's wispy and you don't, you can't tell like sounds are sort of omnidirectional. You can't tell how far anything is. Everything's kind of the same volume, even if it's across the room. It's really, it's a strange auditory experience. So I was really sinking into that and just feeling very blessed and thankful. And then as they came together, our maestros, to sing a duet of sorts, which as a musician, I, I could never tell if she was singing a harmony to his or if it was just an octave in unison. I don't know. And it doesn't matter, but I just can't help like, because it sounded so beautiful. I was like, what is she doing? Well, not she, but I mean, she was the one kind of layering on top of he. And so, um, yeah, it was just fascinating. But anyway, I got in that for a second, I was just appreciating the musicality of it, which was just so badass. Then sort of hear this little rumbling. I thought, what the hell is that? It's kind of like this hum sound. And I thought, someone playing a didgeridoo? Like, what is up in this piece? And then I realized, oh shit, it's raining. And then while they're singing the final song, it just starts gushing rain in this torrential tropical downpour. And it's just thundering on the roof. I mean, not thunder, thunder, but the rain is just this thunderous hum to it and then the smell of the rain you know that smell of fresh rain which depending on what type of climate you're in is a different smell so in the jungle it's a very different smell than in the rocky mountains or in the desert i think the desert's my favorite fresh rain smell though i gotta say for whatever reason there's a name for it a friend of mine told me and it eludes me at the moment perhaps the medicine will remind me of it tonight but there's a name for that smell and i was smelling that you know the fresh rain and listening to the song and i was like i'm good and then i could see how like I was guided to take what was the appropriate amount of medicine and I'm learning that 
there's not the perfect amount. It's going to be different every time. You're going to see different things, hear different things. Sometimes it's going to be more focused and sometimes it'll be much more chaotic and random. And, you know, sometimes you're very tired and kind of sleepy through it. Sometimes you're wide awake and laser focused. It's just completely unpredictable and there's no sense trying to control. So with that, I fell asleep for a couple hours and as it started to get light, the, uh, the rooster crows at the break of dawn and uh, they started to sort of gently wake me up and then I went up on the star deck and knew that I was just in time for the sunrise and so I sat there and just watched the most epic sunrise ever across the ocean. It was just directly pointed at me and just did some gazing there and it was like, wow, what a, what a beautiful way to end another beautiful night. So with that, I'm going to walk down this hill for ceremony four of four and I'll just leave you with heart is where the home is. Nani teño tanaka dramaka ya abano hako aki kaya ke anke pata mayoba. No comidre se nabo, midre se nabo kaya, anke trabo vedra sono ko yo dramako. Nani teño banoka, nani teño banoka. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. I'm in this short seat. I'm always the taller one when I do interviews. I'm like, what the hell? I shrunk. This ayahuasca made me tiny. I'll try to slow. (laughs) I'm little man all of a sudden. Uh, So here we are, man. I've just wrapped up my uh, week-long retreat here at Sultara. Finished ceremony four last night. Uh, Dan, our guest. Identify yourself, Dan, for the audience. My name is Daniel Cleland. I um, am one of the founders of Soltara. Myself and uh, my uh, business partner, Melissa Stangle. She was, and she'll have been interviewed before you on this one. Right. So now you know his voice, that's Dan. Mm -hmm. And then Todd has been in the void with me (laughs) for the past four ceremonies. Almost eight days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... um, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm really yeah. excited to have the opportunity to sit down with you guys because I've been doing little field reports, kind of before ceremony every night, and then I can't do it after, obviously, because I can't even like work a microphone. But <laughs> uh, the next day, I'll do a little recap, and it's actually been a really great way for me to integrate the process. In some ways, I would think that kind of doing social media and, and all of this would take away from my process, but it actually really helps me kind of contextualize things. And mm, so kind yeah. of like journaling. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. In it's, a way. It's yeah. like audio, audio journaling. But I remember the last time I did a report like this during some ceremonies, some purists were like, Oh man, you're gonna like ruin the experience for yourself. You should just like integrate and chill. And I was like, yeah, I think this is the way I do it. I talk about the experience. And so yeah. So here we are. That's what we're gonna do. 
So I think what I'd like to start with is an overview of how each one of you guys got involved with this ayahuasca plant medicine scene. Uh, Todd, I think you said you've been at this around 16 years or so? Yeah, coming up in 16 years in February. And what was the impetus for you to have your first experience with this medicine and where was it? It's a very good question. (laughs) Basically for me, it was, uh, I didn't go into this seeking healing for something, you know, on the forefront. For me, it was more, I was getting into, say, even Terrence McKenna and like the archaic revival. And I felt that there was something missing in my life. Um, And right before that, that was basically, there was out of high school, I started using cannabis and then I started using mushrooms. And eventually those plants started leading me the way to ayahuasca, so to speak, yet I didn't know it. Um, And then an interest in shamanism, just, you know, shamanism in general and hallucinogenic plants and the use of that. And so, and, and there's that word psychonaut as well about journeying outside of oneself into realms. And so at that time it was a deep mystery, you know, all those types of things. But then soon enough, working with ayahuasca, working with uni. Um, Then the rest started to unfold. And I started to understand in a much deeper way what was starting to happen with me as I was going into a healing process. And actually understanding that even before it was all that too. Yeah. Where was your first ceremony? My first ceremony was uh, on Vancouver Island at an undisclosed location, <laughs> literally. Um, yeah, in, in Canada, it's still a thing. It's, it's quite underground. Um, uh, yet there is more prevalence of it. And yeah, it, it, just, it just happened. It's, it's a, you get a phone call or somebody gets a phone call, then you get a phone call. And it's like, it's happening next week. And then you got a week to do the diet, a week to prepare yourself. I think we had about two actually. And, uh, yeah. And then showing up for my first ceremony, it was just, it was one night and some, some day in February, I can't remember the exact date. None of us can. And, uh, and the rest is history. And did you have a deep and profound experience that very first time? I did. I did. Yeah. I mean, as compared to other experiences, obviously not as, as profound, but that first experience is in itself incredibly profound you know that's somewhat of an initiation and uh yeah yeah and some some of the experiences that i had in between the somewhat sort of silence or not much going on uh were definitely significant and i can still see them you know they it's it's there um as well as just being there in the space, as you know, your first time, anybody's first time doing this. There's the singing, there's the smells, there's the people, there's the purging, there's the stuff going on. And it's just kind of completely new and quite magical at the same time. Yeah. Did it become immediately clear to you that this was something more than just an excuse to kind of see colors and trip out and escape from Yeah. this reality? Yeah. Absolutely. For probably the, you know, we talk about visions and for some people, it's not so much about that. For me, that's just my vernacular as, as an artist. And uh, so 
probably the second vision I had that night was something to do. Well, I, I don't need to get into it, but that that was the signifier right there because it hit home and it stayed with me for quite a long time. As things do, yet it takes time to unravel. It takes time to um, sort of find the pieces if there's any meaning at all. Yeah. And what about you, Dan? What was your entry into this thing? Well, uh, I would say my my entry into the world of medicine was a little more on the violent side, <laughs> um, and and uh, maybe a little more based on uh, on uh, necessity, um, in more of a life or death sense of the word. <clears throat> I um I I suppose I had a fairly troubled uh, uh, upbringing in terms of my teens and twenties, um, carrying some trauma and also a lot of, uh, I was really hard on myself mentally. I was also a pretty, uh, pretty intense partier and, uh, drank a lot, took a lot of drugs, um, listened to a lot of heavy metal, um, uh, <laughs> Which you uh, still do. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I, indicative of uh, your gym choice of Slayer when I, when I walked in the gym here. Which is really funny. When I, when I, before I came here, I was like, God, I wish these kind of places had a gym. I don't want to totally lose my momentum. And then I came and I'm like, I saw that the gym was quite fortified. And then I saw you, you're quite a ripped fellow. And I thought, ah, I know. I know why. Co-founder wanted a gym here. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I built a gym at... Uh, at my first center too, which was much uh, further in, well, it was in the middle of the Amazon, four hours outside of Iquitos. And I had these like, you know, the, I, I imported on it kettlebells and battle ropes down to Peru and had, I'm pretty sure I've got the title for the first, first healing center to have a, a gym on site. But I think um, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I'm, I guess going, Back to my heavy metal days uh, of my my teens and twenties. Um, throughout kind of all of that, I I essentially wasted a decade. I, I wouldn't say I wasted a decade. I spent a lot of time kind of bouncing around the world from job to job to job, getting experience, um, doing what I wanted. However, in somewhat of an irresponsible way didn't actually really achieve anything. And um, I suppose I kind of got by on, um, you know, when you're a bit younger, you can kind of get by on potential. You know, if you convince people that you're uh, intelligent or that you've got a good personality or you've got big plans or whatever. But then when you're kind of getting to be like around 30 years old, people start to judge you on, and you start to judge yourself on what you've actually done instead of what you're going to do with life. And um, I, I was kind of getting hard on myself and uh, I, I, I had been inspired to choose a new path, but I allowed myself to get off track. And so I was kind of condemning myself for that. And at, um, at the end of a, a difficult year, I, I was uh, fairly depressed um, and... Uh, and angry, I was angry at myself, and I was I was kind of carrying around these traumas and these 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 negative programs that were, I would say, contaminating my life. And one night, I uh, I scalded a bottle of uh, Jack Daniels or Jim Beam or something. It was definitely a dark uh, bourbon or whiskey, and um, I attempted to climb Kangaroo Point in Brisbane. Uh, I was living in Australia at the time, which is about a twenty meter uh, uh, cliff in Kangaroo. 
uh, sorry, in um, I believe South South Bank Park, Brisbane. And um, this was at night. I was intoxicated, and uh, I fell from almost the top. Um, like free fell. The uh, the doctors told me it was about fifteen meters that I fell from. So that's about what like four or five stories. Mm. Um, hit the ground at the bottom, shattered my my femur, my pelvis. Actually, you can see the scar right there where the bone came out of my leg. So Damn. the bone came out and and pulled all this skin back, and the muscles were all chewed up in there. Um, narrowly missed my femoral artery, so I could have bled out. Um, split my pelvis in half, so like half my pelvis, like they called it shear fracture, so like it literally just went. Pow. So I landed on my left leg, and this took all of the impact. And so, you know, luckily, I didn't paralyze myself or get a head trauma or anything else. Literally, all of the trauma went through the femur and the pelvis. So I narrowly missed death, basically. And um, and so the ambulance came to get me. I spent the next uh, 40 nights in the Princess Alexandria Hospital in Wollongaba, Brisbane, uh, undergoing surgeries. I had uh, titanium implanted from knee to hip. So I've got a rod from here to here. Had some like screws in there. I got a titanium plate across the front of my pelvis in here. And uh, for like a week or so, I was like basically in a hospital bed with this big like exoskeleton with like external framings like bolted into my bones. And they had me on a morphine drip and then... Uh, and then, um, or at least it wasn't all bad. <laughs> yeah. Now that that was that was a little too fun, if you ask me. Um, yeah, but it was it was like basically if 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 anyone could define a rock bottom, that was my personal rock bottom. There was nowhere lower I could possibly go from that except for actual death. So um, during that time in the hospital, I I came to the understanding, you know, while taking all that time to reflect that, um, that I needed to change something because it was my psychology that was, that was pushing me down this path and I couldn't stop it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't make it through a day without having these thoughts that were just bringing me down on myself, bringing me down on life, feeling hopeless, you know? Um, and I had no direction, no, no, like no, clue what I was going to do for a career. I was like most of my twenties, I was doing sales work and I hated sales, but like I had no other qualifications to do anything else. And I, and, and, um, um, so yeah, I was just like, what the fuck am I going to do? And I was miserable and the whole bit. So anyways, I decided to, 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 to work with ayahuasca because I'd heard about it, you know, I was following like Reality Sandwich at the time, that website, I was reading like Daniel Pinchback and um, so I was aware of ayahuasca, but I hadn't really taken it seriously and then I was, uh, yeah, in this hospital, I started looking up on Reality Sandwich, reading like, you know, and on Reality Sandwich, they posted a retreat about uh, with Dennis McKenna that was actually joining a retreat in, in Peru at this place called uh, Chimbre. So um, I, I made the decision to go. I got the idea in my head. I spent the next like four months uh, recovering from the injury. Uh, I was in a wheelchair for a bit. I was in, uh, I was on crutches for, for uh, a bit, a few months or something. 
popping oxycontins like it was going to style to deal with the pain and um and then yeah i just realized that like my life in australia was not going anywhere and so i i decided to go back to canada and like start over again and flying from um, brisbane back to toronto is like a hop skip and a jump between um brisbane la then toronto and so I figured once I was in LA, I would fly down to Lima, considering I'm on the West Coast, fly down to Lima and try to go to this retreat with Dennis. I didn't have a ticket. I didn't call them or anything like that. I was just hoping that if I showed up, they would like open the doors. <laughs> this naive man I was at the time. Um, I actually didn't make it all the way there. I got held up in Peru and, and in uh, Cusco and a couple of other things happened there. Um, got robbed by a bunch of guys with machetes. I, uh, I got uh, food poisoning. I got altitude sickness and I was coming down from, from the opiates because I stopped taking opiates before I left. So I, I didn't actually make it to this retreat, but I met a guy. I became friends with a guy that had just finished a retreat there. He was involved in this whole circle in the States. So I go back to Canada and it's like life recovery, living at my parents' house, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And, um, and then ended up getting a job working on uh, fishing boats out on Vancouver Island. And while I was training for that job, this dude who I met in Peru invited me to a ceremony in New Mexico. So I actually flew from BC down to New Mexico, did one ceremony, and <clears throat> it was like uh, the most powerful, profound experience I ever had. It was super, super heavy. I did a double dose and um, yeah, like 10, 15 minutes after I took the second dose, it was just like, what's going on? Like the, they were playing instruments and it, it was just like this stream of light and color was going right into me. It was like, whoa. And, uh, and then in like an instant, I felt like I was going to throw up. And so I sat up and I'm like, whoa, like I had no motor skills trying to find my bucket. I could not find my bucket for the life of me. And so long story short, I ended up vomiting all over the floor. Um, <laughs> and, um, and aside from that, I had a massive physical purge. I also, um, you know, had this massive emotional purge transform the probably the most transformative thing that happened was i literally saw myself like standing like it was like i was looking at myself like i'm looking at todd right now and i saw all those things i hated about myself like all the imperfections the injuries the you know the whatever goofy smile whatever and uh i just felt this sense of like love and i was like fuck i just looking at myself going like you're a pretty good guy. Like what, <laughs> what the fuck, you know, stop being so hard on yourself. So <clears throat> anyways, that kind of instantly changed the way I thought about myself. So it changed the way I treated myself and the way I'd made decisions. Um, I did a lot of grieving as well. Um, and I just found that like, I, I, I felt like I, discovered the definition in a, in a very sentient kind of experiential 
way, like a deep knowledge of five different terms, um, love, intensity, uh, agony, um, medicine, and profundity. I like, those were just words before that night. And then after that night, those all had a very different meaning to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were just, there were several things I, you know, I saw my family members, I saw like people who I, 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 I thought could really use like the same kind of experience as healing. I just had never experienced anything like that ever in my life. And I, I, you know, I'd taken all kinds of drugs. I'd had acid and mushrooms hundreds of times. And, oh, you had. So you, oh, yeah, man. You'd been psychedelic before, but just Big not. Time. Wow. Yeah. I used and to grow you, mushrooms, and you know, I used and to. And on mushrooms, you never had any experience that was revelatory and transformative like that to that degree. Oh, I I had special experiences. You know, I lived in high school. I lived right beside a, a forest in Walkerton, Canada, and uh, you know, me and my friends all the time. Like, Jesse, the guy who works here, you know, we would, um, we would take mushrooms and go down the bush and go walking around the town and spend time in nature. And like at a very early age, 17, 18 years old, I had like these beautiful spiritual kind of experiences with mushrooms where I'd be down in the bush and it would just be like totally connected with nature and everything. And like, wow, mushrooms weren't a party drug for me. They were like something I would like to take by myself and get, you know, go introspective. But they were just, the level of intensity was like one compared to 10 for me. Um, Meaning the ayahuasca was just... 10x. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it was fully overpowered. Like it flattened me. Like I'd never, you know... I I understand. Mm. So then, um, (laughs) so that just set me on the path and I continued bit by bit to to do more dietas. Uh, uh, Six months after that, I went down to Peru and to the place I had intended to go the first time, did a month-long dieta, developed some more ideas, got, got more into the practice. And then um, uh, I, probably within a year or two, uh, I had formed a little... I, I discovered throughout all these you know, experiences and, 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 and what transpired in between the experiences in the real world and the idea I was getting, the books I was finding and all this... Um, that entrepreneurship was my path. And that's why I was struggling to find something that satisfied me in the conventional sense, because what I was... You mean having a job? (laughs) Exactly, yeah, yeah. I get it. (laughs) I couldn't keep a job. And I was like, okay, well, I have to create my own path. So I formed a little tour company in 2011 and started uh, just, just based on, you know, me talking about my own experiences and then people requesting me to uh to take them on trips to go and experience the medicine so i started a little tour company in 2011 uh taking small groups down to south america to you know peru colombia brazil uh ecuador and and doing like ceremonies in peru and uh did that for a couple of years while i was still working other jobs uh and and studying and um and then just got to a certain point where like at the same time that was kind of getting some popularity and I was just having difficulties with this job I was working and um, those things intersected. And I just said, you know, I was finishing a, a master's degree at that point. I just said, screw it. I'm going to take the chance. And so quit the job and 
focused on on building that little tour company. Um, that went for a couple of years, slowly just, you know, investing my own resources and growing it and doing like, we were just talking about this, doing everything myself, you know, and, and slowly hiring other people to take on different responsibilities. So then I could think bigger in 2014, I built a center in uh, Peru in the Amazon. Um, and, uh, uh, should people center ran that for a few years and then in 2017, um, sold that and started building Soltara. And we opened in 2018, and here we are. So both of you guys, what a fascinating story. It's just amazing how you were called in such a way where it became, I guess for both of you, a vocation, not just, oh, I have my life, and then I have my plant medicine life where I go to <laughs> heal and grow. It's like yeah. it became one thing. I find that so fascinating. What I'm curious about is... So you guys have both been in the game here, or for lack of a better term. I guess it is kind of a gang in cer- game in ceremony in At many times. ways. Um, <laughs> I find the medicine to be very um, uh, mischievous. Mm. It has like a real sense of humor with me all the time. So there is this sort of playful dance um, at times. Not you, always. You certainly laugh a lot. Yeah, it kind of kind of does that, man. Yeah. It's, it, from the very first ceremony, there's it's just it's what it does. But anyway, I'm wondering. Mm. You know, because there's like, I don't know, both of you have such a breadth of um, experience here. I feel like how, this is, we need six hours to really like unpack. I mean, just to talk about one experience could be an hour long podcast at, at least. But I'm curious in an overview, having gotten into this, both of you, when it was still relatively obscure and, you know, threads on Reddit and these kind of underground websites and, mm-hmm. you know, still like kind of considered doing drugs to many people in the West and this very kind of obscure, nebulous practice that people in other countries do. And then a few kind of, you know, black market, quasi-criminal-ish people in the States or Canada. Like, how have you, how have you seen the whole scene evolve both in, in, the, in a positive sense? And then as Dan, you and I were talking about a little earlier in kind of the negative sense and the commercialization of it to the point of, you know, there being some bad characters getting involved in the business side. Mm. What's, what's your take on kind of the, the whole, well, let's just stick with ayahuasca for now, the ayahuasca scene in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we need about eight hours. I know, I know. This stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's in depth. I know from like back when, when I first got into it, it was... Uh, I mean, it was obviously going on, but it was, I, I can see now that back even in 2004, 2003, early 2000s, that's when, when uh, Shipibo apprentices, because working with the Shipibo tradition here, and that's where I started as well. And also a mix of the Mestizo tradition. So that's like the mixed race tradition too. And uh, so as opposed to working in Shipibo and working with that language, it's with the Quechua language too. Um, and so back then it was, like I said, it was underground. And it was also a thing that was uh, a lot, it, was, it just wasn't, even in 2004, where was the internet at? Where was information at uh, compared to even five years after that? And so there was a proliferation of information that took a little while. And that also included uh, somebody like David Suzuki, who's a Canadian scientist, you know, David Suzuki. Of course. Yeah, so he's, he did a Nature of Things documentary about that, which was actually about the people that I was working with at the time. And then there was a STEM documentary that came off of that. And so that 
brought, I found, awareness to what was going on, as opposed to more of like, what is this kind of voodoo mentality about it all? And uh, so there was more education that was coming into it. But like I said before, when I started, there was no, there was nothing about integration, you know, post, post uh, ceremony or post retreat integration stuff. Um, it was show up and you're with a bunch of people that you perhaps don't know. Maybe you're with a few friends or whatever. And, you know, we've got the maestros holding the space. Um, and if you were there for one night up to three nights, say it was like a weekend, there was, uh, there was a space held. But outside of that, once you went home, it was, you're on your own, right? Um, it was all about the experience. It was about the experience, that yeah. That was all the discourse too, like, you know, the ayahuasca monologues and, yeah. um, you know, all these different kind of, all the media that, a lot of the media that was produced was, mm -hmm. was talking about purging and kind of sensationalizing a little bit. Big you know, time. Big, intense ayahuasca experiences. Yeah. What, what you can find on YouTube, you've got all, you know, just people having their experiences and it's shot in night vision. And it's like this chaotic purging, yeah. really strange place, you know, like a Maloka. It's just, Looks you know, like the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I was just going to get to that. Yeah. yeah. Totally. So a little bit of that time kind of felt like that. As much as we felt, I felt, and, and, so, and, I, and I can say like some of the, the people I was with, it was something that was countercultural which mm -hmm. was a thing that from my generation yeah. growing up, you know, leaving high school and then in, in the mid-90s, you know, it was like grunge era stuff. And it was just sort of being rebellious and going against the status quo or, you know, those types of things. Some people more than others. Um, but for me, it was also something that, as I said before, it was, I felt that I was reclaiming in myself and culturally too, which kind of gets to that next point about, you know, say the supposed negativities of what, what have happened and what still happen in, in, the, in the, the world of ayahuasca today. Um, so when it comes to the integrity of the people that are having such a, you know, there's a, such a responsibility to be able to serve this, this medicine to people, to bring it to people, um, as well as the responsibility of, of taking on the training there's, a, there's such a deep sacrifice that goes on with this too. I know with our maestros, like I, I love them to bits and I've only known them for a couple of months. It takes a while for me to really get to know certain people for sure. It's like the, these, are the, these are the maestros that I'm working with. Explain to the audience who the maestros are. Well, maestros, that's a, that's a term for, for the, the Shipibo uh, curanderos that we're working with. So curanderos or IE healers. So we call them maestros, teachers, masters. Um, for me, it's more of a term of endearment. And uh, so with them, uh, it's like, there's, there's, I, I trust them fully, you know? And they, because they have such integrity, they're family people. But one other thing about them is that they have a grasp of what's going on from their ancient lineage to now, you know? So it's, they're really bridging both these worlds and it's rare. And I find that it's rare because it's also something that's new. When has this ever really happened before? How long has ayahuasca been out of the jungle? Right? Not long. Yeah. So there's a lot of this stuff is the, the considerations that, that uh, I often think about, you know, or I, I carry with me. Um, because as it grows, 
and it spreads. And the access to medicine is actually pretty easy. You know, you can literally just go down to Peru, go down to Colombia. You can go to, find down to some. Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go down get, to Hollywood. I get invited to ceremonies all the time. I'm like, are you, are you serious? Like in yeah. the middle of LA and the fucking yep. EMF central and just <laughs> pedoville, like take ayahuasca? Oh, yeah. I don't think so. No fucking way. Just imagine the places where it. it's being held these days. I don't get it. I yeah. mean, no offense to anyone. If I'm sure people have beautiful experiences and many yeah. of my friends have, I think. Just because my first was in, you know, I was sequestered at a center and then here again, where just I feel totally enveloped by the staff and the shaman, the maestros, the whole experience is just feels so legit and And safe. And the nature, man. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, just, I I would never want to do any sort of psychedelic medicine at all in a city. That's just me. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's because I had a lot of kind of bad trips yeah. you know, going to concerts as a teenager and yeah. mm-hmm. taking too much acid at dead shows and coming out in the parking lot and be like fuck oops yeah. you know yeah. I mean? like, yeah, yeah. you know that kind of thing it brings me back <laughs> to the bad trip energy kind you don't want to so. have to make too many like practical moves when you're under yeah. the influence like, dude I used yeah. to take acid and then like once a story I've told before but it just it was just one of those like rookie moves is we took bunch of acid uh, to go see the Pink Floyd laser show in Golden Gate <laughs> Park. Of course, this is like 86. I was probably 16. And, um, and you know, we took it, I don't know, maybe an hour before we got there fucking around in the park and then went in and we were peaking as this thing happened. But what we didn't realize, the show is probably 45 minutes. Oh, you wow. know, the acid's 12 hours. Yeah. We got out and like, <laughs> had to drive the streets of San Francisco, you know, and navigate our way around just frying balls. And yeah, um, yeah I was just, I used to do a lot of stupid shit like that. So I've always had this kind of aversion to mm. ending up in a wrong, the wrong set and setting. Yeah. yeah. Even while just trying to party, not even to have a, you know, authentic, meaningful spiritual experience like my intention in coming here. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, um, so ah, there's so many different things I want to, I want to go off on here, I guess from your perspective, you know, cause you've been in the game a long time and coming more from, you know, as you said, fairly early on the business side and going, wow, there's an opportunity here for me to do something meaningful that I'm passionate about and also serve others and give them an opportunity that might be difficult for them to do in a safe way. How have you observed just in Peru and South America as this industry has kind of evolved? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I think Todd mentioned it, the the migration or the evolution from counterculture to mainstream has mm-hmm. been probably the most significant uh, transformation I've seen. Like uh, when I first uh, started drinking and, and, and started talking about it, I was still kind of fighting against this you know, I got some comments from my relatives like, oh, I know what you're doing down there. You're just going to get high and do drugs in the jungle and drink this poison. And, you know, my parents were quite concerned and stuff like that because there wasn't a lot of this media coverage. And then as time has gone on, it's just, it's, you know, there's respectable, reputable sources that are now putting out media coverage. So it's just, it's a lot more... Um, uh, it's oh, okay. It's a lot less taboo. It's a lot more mainstream. It's, yeah. it's 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 more of a respected healing practice, and I think that's probably the the way it's going. Um, I would say the popularity of it has definitely opened up opportunities for inexperienced people to do the practice, um, charlatans to do the practice. Luckily, there haven't been 
a ton of incidents lately, you mm-hmm. know, because I think that along with that, there's been a lot of words of caution that mm-hmm. a lot of people that like a lot of the influencers talking about it, Amber Lyon, mm-hmm. Aubrey Marcus, Joe Rogan, you know, Luke, like other people who are doing podcasts that share their ayahuasca experiences mm-hmm. generally accompany their 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 uh testimonial with but be careful about where you go because you mm-hmm. know sometimes things happen right yeah that's very true and i think that was the, that was the one of the barriers to entry for me is i'm not gonna go down in some canoe in the freaking river in peru <laughs> and find some little guys in the jungle you know it's just like no yeah. i'm not i'm not taking my chances with that and i'm a you know pretty courageous adventurous type of guy sure, but yeah. you know when i started finding out, oh, there's these legitimate centers that have a trained staff and they're clean and nice and have air conditioning. And I think I'm just, I don't want to say high maintenance. Well, I am true, but uh, (laughs) it's all, I I remember when I, when I, when I went in uh, January, um, a friend of mine was like, dude, you're not doing like the real thing. You're going to some fucking resort, you know? And I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not trying to go get bit by mosquitoes all night and Mm -hmm. have an awakening. Um, but I think that was, you know, once I realized that it was legitimate and safe and, you know, hearing guys like Aubrey go, hey, man, heads up, like, make sure you're, you know, you you vet the source and, yeah, and all yeah. of that. I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And that those words of uh, warning, you know, made it easier for me to go, oh, and start to kind of dip my toe in the water around the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So as long as people are are aware, like... If you wanted to, you know, you could land in Iquitos, you could go to the main street and you've got 10 people that are like, I'm a shaman. Yeah. My uncle's a shaman. Mm-hmm. Let's go do ayahuasca. Oh, really? oh for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, you know, yeah. would you like some cocaine with that? Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, like they'll sell you right. cocaine one day and take you to go do ayahuasca the next day. Oh, man. So, so, you know, as long as people are aware that that is not to be, uh, you know, um, that is to be avoided, mm-hmm. those types of scenarios. And so again, yeah, just, I think, I think people are pretty much clued in about that, mm-hmm. right? People A, have common sense and B, if they're interested in ayahuasca and if they've heard about it, then they've usually heard that word of warning mm-hmm. from, from people as well. Yeah, just really born out of necessity. That's the other part too. And, you know, for myself, it's like, I, I see how ayahuasca is guiding all of this too, you know, in, in such a... Uh, also like sensibilities come into this. And so when, when people are, are healing themselves and then getting the message to open up a center, you know, that's, that's a huge responsibility right there too. And I, I can't even imagine, but I do see how this has become the bridge as well too. Because sure enough, if you want to have that experience and some people are still looking for it, you know, they want to get in the canoe and go up river, down river, you know, nine hours, 10 hours and, and sit with the shaman without a mosquito net and drink ayahuasca and have that. I mean, you certainly can. How authentic will that be? Well, there's certainly a lot of people out there that are trying to sell you something like that. So that's the corrupt part too. When it's for people, it's when it gets into the money sector you know because there's money as an energy obviously it's 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 what makes the world go around in so many ways but having a balance with that as well i remember my first ceremony actually was was about uh it was just kind of like we pay for this (laughs) Right, right 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 why yeah this needs to be for everybody yeah you know that that kind of thing and um but i got over 
that money thing, that ceremony too. Just realizing that um, it, it actually shifted a lot of that for me too. That was like a part of the healing process of like, of uh, having, having more flow in my life and being generous and like, wow, I'm putting it into something and this is actually helping people and seeing where it goes too. Yeah, the goes, skin in the game too. It goes back to the village. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, it's, it can be very evident. Yeah, for sure. Something I'm curious about is this, this isn't a kind of a philosophy that I subscribe to, but there are a, a certain sect of people that take issue with taking practices and traditions of indigenous peoples, especially those peoples that have perhaps been subjugated mm-hmm. by colonialism, et cetera, yep. and practicing this cultural appropriation where you're now capitalizing on these traditions and there's a negative connotation to that. And Mm. I've personally, I mean, I don't know, like I'm a white dude that doesn't really have a culture. I've invented my own culture. So Mm -hmm. maybe I don't have ties to my ancestors and roots because I'm such a mutt, you know, there is no tradition in my family of any kind. Mm. Um, not even like Christmas or anything really, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but for me, it's like here having this experience with our maestros from Peru, the way I'm looking at that is like, wow, these guys have a job. They're probably getting paid well. They're doing what they love and they're helping to facilitate this incredibly profound and deep healing for people that might never have the opportunity to access that. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing keeping those traditions, not only alive, but allowing them to proliferate and actually flourish. And Mm -hmm. I'm imagining they're going to have apprentices and kids and, you know, that tradition that might've even died off if it wasn't quote unquote appropriated. You know Mm -hmm. where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, to me, it's like, I always talk about this in the context of if I never heard Led Zeppelin, I never would have bought a Howling Wolf album. So should (laughs) Led Zeppelin have not played, you know, their version of the blues? I mean, are they like stealing from, you know, African-Americans that ended up in America and made blues? I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but Mm. I'm glad they fucking did. And I bet Howling Wolf's, you know, whoever owns his archives are stoked too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. you know, it gets down to this weird point. Well, can I eat spaghetti? Because then... Am I yeah. like appropriating Italian? You know, yeah, it's yeah. just where does it end? Where does it begin? Yeah, what, it gets a little nuts. What's, I think, <laughs> what's your take, you know, being a couple of Westerners that have now, I think, made probably a very positive contribution to those communities and to the culture in general? What's, what's your old take on that? Hmm. Well, there's, okay, so it's not like, uh, it's not like we're saying that, you know, we're not taking ayahuasca and buying it for $1 and selling it for $100. You know what I'm you know what I mean? It's not like we're just putting a markup on a product. Mm-hmm. Nor is it like we are um just selling the culture of the Shipibo, right? Um there are different points to consider here. One is as you said, by us, okay, we're essentially bridge builders right um the the organization itself is like the golden gate bridge a very complex uh feat of engineering that you know requires a lot of effort and 
talent to go in it and make it a strong bridge that that does its job properly um and so having that bridge in place it allows the indigenous culture in its raw form to be exposed to a higher amount of people a greater number of people so that does actually serve the culture because it creates okay yeah they are getting paid well right they are also able to bring their traditional uh crafts and their traditional work and and sell those and and make money off those and what it does is it creates um an economic viability to that culture whereas a lot there is a problem right now in the shipibo communities with the youngsters you know everyone's got an iphone and they want to go make money and 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 live in the city and do something that that uh, is economically viable the fact that this practice is expanding is actually creating work mm-hmm. for 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 shipibo youth and a reason to you know um continue uh doing their their studies and their practices on top of that though the amount of um effort and experience and skill and talent that the rest of our team like Todd brings to the equation so the actual shipibo presence is a foundational part but there is still this not physical bridge but a methodological bridge between that and western culture and that we've also put together this like integration program using like psychologists and modern western um psychology um so it is a i think you negate the concerns for appropriation provided that you know a are we treating the healers as they should be treated and i'm pretty sure that if you ask them they will all say that they're quite happy they seem pretty stoked they're they're me. i mean they're yeah. they're doing well yeah. you know they're doing yeah. well mm-hmm. and they both seem actually that's one of the things that i really noticed about uh, both of our maestros is when i just see them walking around and just you know in their downtime they are super happy mm-hmm. which is always an indication to me that's like i want to learn from that person because they've obviously figured something out they mm-hmm. seem at peace and just joyful you know yeah. yeah and you know we're not um we're not stealing from the culture you know all the medicine that comes here was brewed in a shipibo community by shipibo families little kids smashing the ayahuasca vine with hammers and and like you know shipibo elder ladies you know helping to brew like i've been there mm. where the where the medicine's brewed and it's like a family event there's like 10 people and you know working on these big pots brewing ayahuasca and stuff mm. So so the actual commercial practice they it's like they get paid for what they do and they get paid well and and very fair for what they do and then the extra stuff that we do what Todd does you know caring for people in the ceremony moving people around helping people that need help and guiding this whole process that's extra work and he's getting paid for doing that extra work you know what i mean um everything that everybody does everyone has their roles here and everyone puts a lot of dedication and effort into what they do we all work extremely hard around here mm-hmm. um and everybody gets paid for that and that is extra in addition to 
in addition to the the what the healers are bringing to the table and what the the traditions are coming up that that bring to the table um so yeah i think i think it's it's uh it's a lot more than just you know putting a markup on their practice and then selling it it's actually putting in a whole lot more extra stuff that we're yeah bringing to the table as well yeah it's like it's like bringing it to bringing it back to how do i say it just like let's make it real folks you know like let's this is this is the reality that's going on here and um you know with 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 teo marina they're doctors but they're not the type of doctors that when you go see a doctor you you know you leave the the doctor's office and there's no connection you got a connection with these guys for life so there's so much more going on than just what happens in this space here too, which uh, a lot of people don't realize in that. And I guess, you know, working with ayahuasca more, you will, but that's going to take time. Yeah. So there's... Well, it's uh, interesting when we did the consult with um, with those two <laughs> yeah. and I stated what my intention was, I was just kind of throwing something at the wall. I'm, you know, sort of open to whatever's going to manifest according to nature and you know, I'm not trying to control the situation or at least doing my best to not do that. And then I was thinking about today as I was taking a picture with both of them, because I remember Teo indicated to me, he's like, I got it. It'll be done. No problem. That thing, mm-hmm. you know, it was like that. Yeah. I was like, oh shit. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of forgot about that, that agreement that we had made in a sense. And then today I realized, holy shit, that intention is exactly what I got. Yeah. It's the exact, very specific clarity that I got around those particular issues. Yeah, and you never know how it's going to play out. Yeah, that's the funny part. You know, that's really that's really interesting. But back Mm. back to the point of like the the melding of these cultures, and to your point of having Todd and Jocelyn in ceremony, I think you guys did a really great job of not not only translating because they're Spanish speaking, but just like really being. I don't want to say strict, but pretty firm about the tradition. You know, yeah. it's like, this is the way we do this. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, let's make all the Westerners like vibe with this in mm-hmm. their own way. It's like, no, this is how this goes down. Everything's very kind of mm-hmm. set and, and regulated and you guys are holding space and kind of, we know that you two are the bridge between us and the maestros mm-hmm. and that you're you're definitely supporting them, which is really beautiful to watch. Like just really carrying them through that to allow them to do their thing and um, serving them as well as us at the same time. And I think that that's a really important part of it because had you guys not been there to kind of translate the experience itself and explain to us like why we're doing this, why we're doing that, when this happens, when that happens, Mm -hmm. then if I had just gone to their village in Peru and you guys weren't there, I'd be like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, it's like, it would just be too kind of strange i wouldn't be able to contextualize it and feel safe and just relax into but you it. could do that that's yeah. the thing yeah. if you wanted to do that you could mm-hmm. but then you'd have to understand spanish you'd have to be able to get the logistics figured out and get around there you might not have a comfortable place to stay it might not suit your kind of western needs you know what i mean and that's totally on the table and that's all awesome mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, like I've done that, Todd's done that, you know, I know lots of people have done that Mm -hmm. and some people want to do that and that's awesomely great and perfect. Um, the only difference between that and this is that we have put together those things that make it, uh, 
So you don't have to know Spanish to do this so that you have a comfortable place to stay so that there is someone there to help like translate the experience and, and, and all that stuff that might make it more accommodating to us as Westerners. You know what I mean? So there's just, mm. that's just the extra part on top of the authentic part. Yeah. And literally what is an authentic experience? Where did that come from? Right. Where did that come from? Is there is there anything that is from the lineage that is a definite? You know, it used to be this way all the time. This is an evolution. And so as we as we say to people too, uh, what I've learned from working with Shipibo Maestros is that the patient didn't drink before. It's like, really? The patient didn't drink ayahuasca? You know, why? And it was just not something that was done. They didn't need to because they had the curandero of, of their village or of their family, and they dealt with it. They drank, and then they did the healings with, with their family members or friends or whoever was, in, whoever was around. Uh, and then it changed. So the, the message came through ayahuasca that now it's time to serve it to the people. Whenever that happened, last couple hundred years, I mean, we, we don't know. We don't know these things. And so when it comes to even just a lot of the information that's out there, it's, it's, it's maybe not correct. It's kind of tenuous. It's like, well, where did that come from, Right. Um, back to the appropriation thing. Uh, we're living in quite a dichotomy this, the, this, in this time. And so I do see, I'm, I'm a lot less uh, bent out of shape about that kind of stuff because I know that if that's going on, there's something else that's in balance with that too. This is just the way it is. And that's also what I learned from, from my medicine path, so to speak, and working with the maestros too. It is as it is. And so... Back to, you know, if you want this experience that's an authentic experience, what does that even mean? Authentic to wanting to be in the jungle, you know, without, you know, just being bit by mosquitoes and whatever, whatever. Um, or do you want to be in a place that takes out sort of these unnecessary variables? But this is the evolution. You know, it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah, in, in the sense like you don't need to go into that primordial kind of deep jungle hell zone for people. I was in, I was in the Amazon for basically over five years at, at another center, quite a large one. And uh, it's, it's more or less where I cut my teeth and uh, worked with probably in that time, um, definitely over a thousand people. So seeing variables for sure. You know, people come in and they, they really want, like they, some people came in ready for some sort of safari, right? Yet it's not going to be that way because the, you know, the place was well represented and people were well taken care of, but it was still uh, the jungle. It's the Amazon. And so there's the insects and the bugs and the noises and the sounds and the heat and the rain, uh, the possible dengue fever, the possible malaria, you know, all this kind of stuff too. And uh, some people would show up and it would dawn on them that, they're, whoa, I'm actually here. And that alone was a thing that they had to get over in that two-week, 10-day period. Just being hot, being uncomfortable. There's no air conditioning, right? So in a way, that's the authentic experience for that place. There's an authentic experience for what's going on here. But I think there's some sort of myth <laughs> about things and meanwhile, there's been so many traditions, so many lineages as well. So many different indigenous groups have their own ways as well. I also see what goes on in Brazil. Um, 
And things are being sold as if it's kind of a Disneyland kind of adventure tour. You know, I see it that way. And it's like, fine, if it's benefiting the community, do what you want, right? See where it goes. You make your bed, lie in it. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, But there's also like the ayahuasca conference as well. You know, it's been going on for quite a while. I haven't been yet. But I know it was uh, the one that was in Rio Branco. I mean... Some st- a lot of stuff came up in that one too. I, I don't know if you can go back into the YouTube videos and watch some of the talks, but there was some heated things that came out about appropriation. Of course, it needs to be that way. There needs to be a voice for that because it's, it's, it's respect um, and especially for something that is preservation of a tradition. But who's, who, who am I to come in to uh, an indigenous tradition and say, you need to preserve this, right? right. It's kind of entitled. Right, but of I think that's course. The funny thing about that, um, that kind of uh, thought form or that idea is I think from my perception, many of the people that are labeling sharing of traditions as cultural appropriation are usually not from the culture that's being appropriated. That's right. They're taking it upon themselves to be advocates for someone else who didn't ask for that to mm-hmm. happen in some cases, mm-hmm. which I find interesting just as a yeah. psychological observation. Mm-hmm. To me, it comes down to one thing. Does it serve the highest good to be doing whatever we're doing? Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of what you're indicating. Mm-hmm. It's like, is this healing people? Is it helping people? Yeah. Do all parties benefit? Yeah. Is anyone left out of that benefit? <laughs> yeah. No? Cool. Let's do this shit. Yeah. The other side of it to me is like, God made all of this, made the peoples from all the different places, Mm -hmm. made the medicine, told someone how to make the medicine, is in charge of what the medicine does to you, where it goes on the planet. It's like, who's to control? Well, we can't let ayahuasca go past Costa Rica because if you do it in Texas, you're stealing from, you know, Colombian people or something. It's like, no, God, there's perfect abundance in the universe Mm -hmm. and God doesn't create things that heal and transform people so that one sect of people can hide it away and lock it up. I just mm. don't believe truth is meant to be locked. Truth is universal and omniscient and it's part of God and God yeah. is everywhere in all things. So it's just going to leak out of the you know, cracks. You're right. Yeah. Um, do you, do either of you know approximately how many ceremonies you've each done? <laughs> Not that the number, <laughs> not that the number, you know, means everything, but I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm laughing because I, I, there was a point where I needed to know. And so once I got over 150, it just didn't matter. And that was now many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. About the same. Um, I, I, <laughs> just I, I think Even people... 150 is just crazy considering yeah. the psychic shifts that have transpired in eight times. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. each time I think, yeah, I'm probably good. Like I I've been shown enough to last a lifetime, you know, but yeah. then another year goes by and I'm sure it's like, oh, mm, there's something new to kind of delve into. The thing is though, like when you're kind of like from zero to say 20 or 25, it's like each ceremony is like its own adventure, like mm-hmm. its own story, you know, and you remember the deep and I can still remember details of like my first, you know, dozen ceremonies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after a while, you know, it, it, it's, I don't know, it, it changes. It's kind of like 
you kind of see similar themes that come up and like, it's more of like a reset and a reconnect rather for me personally, anyways, rather than like, you know, I, I don't seem to get those like, boom, those heavy kind of, I also am kind of a weakling when it comes to drinking the full cups, but, uh, no comment. <laughs> I'm always like, I'm always like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's always a map for you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, I don't know. Um, I what think a, it changes after a while. You start, yeah. you stop counting. Well, it's also, it's also depending on the role. Like what I do as I've started facilitating like around nine years ago, and that was back in Canada doing it with, with my ex-wife at the time and another curandero um, at our house because the, who we were doing it with before went to the Amazon. And then I followed suit, you know, sort of knowingly, unknowingly and ended up at the same place. And so that period that was it was like uh, a couple of weekends maybe three weekends and that was the shift for me and at that point maybe i'd i probably drank i don't know 30 times or maybe not even that and uh no it was about that and um then the role changed i wasn't so much a patient anymore you know i wasn't doing this for healing then there's the teaching that's coming in unbeknownst to me as it's happening because it was also kind of full-on um and then I went to the Amazon. Uh, I also went there at first for three months, and that was a healing process for me. And um, I did, uh, in three months, it was a work exchange program. So I ended up doing, uh, in that you do 21 ceremonies, I had a couple more because of my friends there and staff and was also being vetted to work there, um, unbeknownst to me. And then I went back and I started facilitating. And then that's, really when it starts to kick in. And I'm learning from the maestros. It's a, it's a different level. So to say that I've drank so many times, um, there is the part about, well, okay, what was that ceremony about? Because I have the ceremonies for myself where, where I'm in the circle, you know, and those are the ones which I still have. Um, I don't need them as much, but uh, when I'm facilitating, I'm, I'm also drinking, but not all the time. Uh, you know, but I used to all the time, even when I was facilitating at a facilitator dose, but also ramping it up so that it's, as we were talking about this before, it's like, how do you feel or how do you navigate the space or whatever? Um, that's all in the training. Like, like can, you, can you feel the way you did in your seventh ceremony while, while for, you know, facilitating, having that intensity and still be able to function more or less? Uh, yes, you can. And so that's part of the teaching. Right, that's part. That's of, that's fascinating because yeah. I I get so floored, literally. That I mean, it takes everything I've got to just move my right arm because it's getting it's falling asleep. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, or like, oh man, I think I have to take a shit, <laughs> and then it'll be like an hour, and I'm like, do I? Yeah, do I, I do. I where's can't. The door? I, yeah, I can't get up, man. It's yeah. like. I just, I'm pinned to this goddamn mat, you <laughs> yeah. know? And then I look at you guys and just like, you're in this ethereal kind of drifting around the room. It's dark. And I'm like, how are they up doing shit right now? And kind of, you know, minding the door and really looking out for everyone. It's, yeah. it's a fascinating thing. Um, I was so shocked in my first few, I think I did like three ceremonies. And then afterward, I was kind of hanging out, talking to different, you know, guides and facilitators and I was talking to this one woman. I was like, oh, your singing was so beautiful and the way you were dancing. She's like, yeah, well, you know, when I'm on the medicine, it's just, and I was like, wait, what? You, you, you guys are on it? She's like, yeah, mm -hmm. all 14 of us are all like heavily on it. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Because you know, they're just, 
things are on time, they're being really carefully managed. It's I guess it's just one of those things you acclimate to a higher altitude and you're able to hike up there, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's like one of the most outlandish or sensational experiences either of you have ever witnessed, you know, some sort of miraculous healing or just mm. an absolute, you know, personality change that someone has gone under, whether mm. they came in bipolar and the next day were straightened out or, you know, have you, have you seen any like very dramatic, very mm-hmm. clear transformations that you might be able to reflect on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's actually quite a few, um, yet even some that are subtle that happen not in the space of the retreat, but for people afterwards as well too, but definitely in the space of the retreat. I mean, I could say that I've seen literal exorcisms, you know, people come in with stuff and then it's exercised out by the great care of, of the curanderos as the, from the maestros too. Um, yeah, many things, but I I also have a bit of an oath about not talking about that stuff Got directly, it. obviously. Got it, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen some some uh, not even mind blowing things just change my life, you know. And some people would call them miracles or whatever, but you know, I see it as more of the truth of what's really going on, you know. And 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 that is when you're working with a certain lineage, as I said, working with the Shipibo. They have their own cosmovision as well, too. And so when you are when I'm working with them, I'm in their cosmovision, I start to understand their way of seeing things as well. So the vernacular that I use, you know, I could use like an exorcism. Um, but in the in their cosmovision, it could be actually just quite different, you know. Um, there are energies that get taken on that become unbeknownst to people as they're carrying them. Right, and they have an influence on people. Just call it energies. Um, it doesn't need to get biblical or anything like that, right? Um, but some actual traditions they do get biblical about it too. If you want to get into daime or whatever. Um, but for this is what I love about the Shi people. It's very straightforward. That's the thing. There's 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 like there's um, sort of no bones about it. And as a, even as a Capricorn, you know, that's just kind of what I really like. As, as you talked about structure and all these things, right? I thought of a, I thought of a word you just reminded me of in um, in ceremony, and I was I thought, man, this is so sort of it's sort of sort of Zen this tradition, you know, which this way of doing it. And then I thought yeah. it's kind of like Vipassana, and then I thought, yeah, it's yeah. Vipassaya, yeah, <laughs> you know? right, right. Well, this this is it, one really, one it's, thing. Yeah, it's so still and so yeah. subtle, and there's just this. Yeah. There's this sort of liquidity to the room and Mm -hmm. it's just very, very slow and ethereal and deliberate. Mm. And and also adding to that, that for me, for the most part, the medicine has really kicked in for me. Mm -hmm. When you're like, okay, brothers and sisters, the ceremony's over. That's what happened last night. And I was like, "Uh, no, it's not. (laughs) This shit just started. (laughs) Have a good night, Todd. I'm like, here we go. You know, so it's just, it's very like long and drawn out. And those periods of silence are, I mean, yeah, the first night or so I was like, "Uh, hello, what, what's happening? You know, and then, I had to relax into that. Okay, all in due time. Trust, trust, trust. And uh, it's just, it's very, very interesting in that way. Mm-hmm. You're right. Um, kind of Taoist. So some people come in, they say, this is very Taoist. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's like elemental, earth-based medicine. Um, for me, you brought up uh, Vipassana. So 
my first uh, ceremony ever was in February. I did my very first Vipassana probably a month and a half later. The two are hand in hand, you know, and I, and I continue to sit. And there's something about Vipassana for me where I can go have a very similar experience to having a retreat with, with ayahuasca, with uni. And, uh, but I don't have to drink anything. You know, what's up with that? Yet it translates so well into my ceremonies. It goes back and forth. I learn things by sitting for 10 days in silence. It's, it's heavy. It's severe at times. And the opposite, you know, the, the flip side of that coin is that it's, it's like there's a lot of elation. So that there's similarities that go on with that too because it's an insight. And so that's the part about having a space that's dark, that has periods of silence. It's insight. It's here. There's no bells and whistles, you know. There are other traditions not to put it down or anything like that, but just to talk about the Shi peoples. That's why I say it's just like, it's, uh, it's not basic. It's so full, but it's enough. And that's what I find for myself. Now, there's no added flutes or anything like that. But back <laughs> in the day when, when we had ceremonies, we would, we, would get the, we would do the ceremony. We'd have the medicine work and then the candle would be lit. And then uh, people would sing or play an instrument or whatever. And it's, and it's profound in that as well. It, 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 I, I do know that it goes hand in hand or working in the mestizo tradition as well too, if you've got a chacapa or rattles and, and whatnot. But now this is one thing that I really respect about, about the Shipibo um, way of working with it. It's the voice, right? Take away everything. And what are you left with in that way, right? And as we talk about how they learn how to sing and where that's all coming from too, I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredibly amazing, you know? I also, I have a lot of respect and, and reverence for that. Yeah, I can and tell. I, I, I think that's why I've just, there was a point where, you know, Iquitos has is, is got, uh, I heard like over 50 plus ayahuasca centers. I've heard like a hundred. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, from, from Iquitos to Nauta is a pretty long road. It's like 90 kilometers. And then there's just places, places, places. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of options. And, and at times I was like, well, I should be checking other things out. But then it just, why? Here I am. I don't need to. I don't need to do that. And then it became more under the guise of like having or working with people, having guests. And, you know, they're coming from other places um, or they're going to other places afterwards too. And it's like, well, or people are asking me about places. I'm like, I, I really don't know. And so, um, yeah, I've just, I've just really just gotten, I think, a lot more simple in the way that I do things. I know, I know what it is that uh, I want more of in my life and it's actually simplicity, you know? Like, let's feng shui the shit out of all of this. And, and uh, you know? <laughs> and it's like literally soltara is soltar to release. Yeah. It's brilliant. I love how you guys came across the name Yeah, too. Mel figured that one out. Yeah. You know the story behind that. She was talking about it. I didn't we get were like, full. We were just killing ourselves trying to come up with a brand name. You know, we... We had a few, like we had a short list and we had settled on one um, and I was cool with it. But Mel was like, no, no, that's not the one. It's not the one. <laughs> so like, come on, let's just settle on this. Like, you know, I don't want to worry about this anymore. And we were just stressing and throwing around like we were trying to go by this, you know, the three syllable kind of uh, brand rule and uh, 
trying to have like a significance. Every time we'd find something, we'd be like, oh, this is awesome. And then you search online and uh, there's that.com and it's another type of resort somewhere. You know what I mean? Like there's just, everything's taken now when you look at it in the context of global uh, internet, right? Mm -hmm. So we're just killing ourselves trying to find this brand name. And I'm like giving up. We're like throwing around like Solara, Solaya, and just like mixing and matching words and syllables, right? And and like like you know, whatever. Um, and then Melissa tells herself, she's like, I should just let this go, you know, like I just let it go. The name is out there, and then she's like, Whoa what is let go in Spanish? And then turns out let go is Soltar. Uh And then, so we were already kind of thrown around similar names. So she's like, Soltar. And she's like, what about Soltara? And then, boom. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know what that that word meant. Yeah, Yeah, I I, I didn't either. Because I, 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 you know, the word Sol, you know, being sun or Tara. I just think of like Buddhist white Tara, green Tara or whatever. Yeah, I thought it had something to do with sun too. Yeah. I'm wondering about, ayahuasca's relationship to addiction you know um because one of the barriers to entry for me was like i don't do drugs anymore you know i'm like similar to your story and then you know i've heard so many accounts of people with iboga you know just straight up using iboga or ibogaine when a you know derivative mm-hmm. to get off heroin and forever like in a couple days or something you know um is there an application for ayahuasca for similar things or have you or either of you witnessed, you know, an alcoholic coming in or a hardcore mm-hmm. drug addict and just being struck sober from, from medicine? I'd say Todd's probably best to comment on. Yeah. That. I've, I've encountered um, drug addicts and alcoholics coming to the medicine, but they also have to be clean before coming in as uh, well. Okay. The thing okay. about aboga is like, you don't necessarily have to be clean off of opiates before going into that, which is, um, I've worked with Uboga over uh, a three-day uh, New Year's. That was like, gosh, three, four years ago. Profound experience too. And there's something about the receptor site that the, I could be totally not right about this, but it's like the, the Ibogaine fills that site and it doesn't leave for up to three months. So then the, there's no um, what's going on with the receptor site when the opiate goes in and then it leaves and then it's empty and then it's like, there's no dopamine going in there. Right, and then there's the withdrawal and the pain and all of that, and so that's magic, right there. Magic of the plants, the chemicals. With ayahuasca, I know for um, when it comes to, um, let's just say alcohol, right? Um, it can be extremely difficult for alcoholics coming in to to even just show up to something like that because it's it's like they're drinking something and I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to drink something else, right? And to be having a, a fear of, of losing that tie as well, which can be a very hidden thing for people. And so I found that there can be kind of any excuse comes up to avoid it or not want to, but where does that drive come to? So people that really show up that want to heal themselves for, for alcohol, I mean, like that's a huge thing to get to that point. And obviously the time is right. It can, it can, be, it can be difficult, you know, it's a detox from the body, it's a detox of the brain. Um, literally a lot of shitting, you know, that's one thing that I see. 
how far do you have to go to get to that point that you end up at an ayahuasca center to heal yourself, right? I recognize that in people. It's taken them a long time through a lot of pain. And finally, something happens. And there's a calling from wherever it is. It has to come from oneself. And it comes from deep inside. I've seen people come in with people that brought them there. It doesn't work. The person doesn't necessarily want to be there. It ends up that the person that brought them there, if they drink, they're the ones having the, yeah, <laughs> the healing yeah, process. Sense. Let's just say that. that. Sense, yeah. call it the hoedown. The, the, yeah. co- the cosmic uh, balancer, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. really? You're going to control their life? Watch this. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. But I've also, I've seen, so it's like, it's treating the toxicity for sure. Ayahuasca can do that, but it's more about everything else getting to the root of the addiction, getting to the root of the suffering that causes one to do that to themselves. Right. It's very right. basic. Right. The process of getting to that root as we talk about, this is a standard thing now, uh, at least for myself when I'm with, with, with groups of people introducing, you know, doing the ayahuasca talk or in a group share or whatever. Um, there's the process of, of, of having the root, you know, like the cord. And this, this is going down to the the start of it all and those roots can be really in there really in there and so when the maestros are working with you they're singing to you they're singing to you it's a it's a it's a gentle delicate slow process to take that soil that's all around it and just loosen it up as opposed to just yanking it out that's that's a thing that just doesn't work I know as a former gardener and a landscaper, it's like going around and trying to weed things. If you just pull off the top, I mean, it's all going to come back later and there's twice as much work. It's a great you analogy, know? yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of what goes on with this medicine work, I find. It's like I said, it's a nature-based thing. If you, if you can do analogies that are in accordance with Mother Earth and the way plants are and all these things, it's, it's right on the money. Um, and that's also something that I, you know, I'm sitting in ceremony and bingo, it just comes it's like, whoa, probably from an experience that I had earlier or whatever. But when it comes to, you know, this is the thing, getting to the root, getting to the root cause of these, that takes time for sure. So that part about um, having a, a severity of wanting to change and get better and to heal, you know, that obviously propels a lot of people in, but then the expectation can be obviously too high. So it takes a little bit of time. Um, and... I found that's, that's where the necessity is for facilitators to be part of this or people even before, you know, they decide that they want to come. Some people, they're literally, they've never heard of ayahuasca before until somehow the word just comes across them or they have a dream or somebody says something about it. They go online and then like the next day they're booking into a retreat center. Um, I would suggest maybe taking a bit more time to see if if uh, maybe doing it so soon won't be so beneficial. Maybe you've got to do some legwork before you actually start to drink this medicine. I'm starting to see that more as opposed to like a run and gun approach. Yeah. You know, that was definitely, desperation. That was definitely the case for me. I mean, I had yeah. the long incubation period of kind of building an awareness and it yeah. starting to appear in the periphery a bit and like, ah, this is going to really, really feel like I've, done enough work on the natch so mm-hmm. to speak that i can really go in and have 
um, a sense of trust in myself that my motives are pure and that I know why exactly I'm doing it and what I hope to get out of yeah. it. Um, yeah. what, what have you guys observed with people? I mean, I know that everyone shares this with you when they, when they come on retreat, but people that are, you know, straight up in recovery already and have been sober, say a number of years in AA, mm-hmm. um, I get a lot of messages from people. In fact, somebody just DM me today and was like, Hey, I really want to try or no, I tried ayahuasca and yeah. I'm two years sober. And then I went back to meetings and people really, you know, kind of shunned me and gave me shit because they don't think I'm sober now. And mm-hmm. for me, I'm, having done this stuff eight times, I feel more sober than ever, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, I'm going on 23 years now. Yeah. But I did have to really myself wrestle with that. And like, am I fucking deluding myself? Do I just want to go, you know, hallucinate and kind of have an escape or am I really doing this to go in? So mm. what's been your experience or perspective on, on people in recovery that, you know, don't have a risk of relapsing and they're in a good place, but they're doing this to further their spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think Todd's also probably better equipped. He's yeah, we definitely, yeah, definitely even, even here having people that are coming in from AA and it's, it's a taboo. They've, they, some of, some of them get really outed in their community. Um, but some not, but I'd say more so. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one. Or they have to kind of sneak it. I think sometimes yes. you know they just kind of go back and just lay yeah. low and don't yeah, don't just, mention it at the meeting. Uh, hey guys, I just got back from the ceremony. <laughs> of course, and that's the thing. You know, I've I've not gone through the twelve step program or AA or anything like that. Like I I only know like so little about it. But there is that thing where it's like sobriety. What does that really mean? If we've got something that's beneficial for people that are suffering, then hey, why not? But it's all coming out in the wash. People are showing up. That's the thing. So maybe maybe that needs to evolve, you know, in that community, in that structure. Who knows? I'm not one to say. Yeah, I'm just yeah. going to leave it at that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, I respect that. I mean, one thing I was telling uh, Melissa in our interview with her is just a little context on the beginnings of Alcoholics Anonymous and mm-hmm. the founder or co-founder, Bill, uh, when he was sober, I'd say 25, 30 years toward the end of his life in the 60s, he mm-hmm. started hanging out with Aldous Huxley yeah. and doing LSD right. to facilitate a spiritual experience because he knew that's what got all the alcoholics sober was yeah. through these spiritual principles and the 12 steps. You have a spiritual experience gradually, yep. usually, you know, piecemeal, little by little over a period of time. And then he found out about LSD and was like, oh, maybe I can help more alcoholics mm-hmm. and help myself to have that spiritual experience and that connection with God and then alleviate the underlying root cause of why I need to drink to anesthetize myself. Yeah. So yeah. A, a purist could say that, you know, the co founder. If your definition of sobriety does not include, you know, the clinical or medicinal use of LSD, then that guy didn't even die sober. Yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah, he yeah. did from drink. Yeah. You know, um, so it's mm. it's interesting. I don't I don't know that there's a clear answer, but I think it's pretty much subjective. That's yeah, right. it is. That's right. Totally. It is. Mm-hmm. And 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 personal. And I think one has to really be honest with themselves. And it's not something I would ever like recommend to someone who's very new and mm. kind of just getting you know their sea legs and living a life without drugs and alcohol if they've been so afflicted. But um, yeah. I think the difference is with ayahuasca, it's it's kind of the reverse of other drugs where if you're drinking or taking other drugs, they normally give you a spike of feel good, a, a spike of dopamine or numbness or something like that. And then it's the crash that keeps you in the drug, mm-hmm. right? It's the hangover that can be remedied right. by more alcohol right. yeah. 
or the withdrawal symptoms that can be remedied by more drugs. Mm-hmm. Whereas with ayahuasca, the first part of the experience is actually sometimes not really all that like pleasurable and it's it requires effort no shit and it's work (laughs) you know what i mean but then but then it's the after effect Mm -hmm. like you don't need more of it after because it leaves you feeling good after for an extended period of time Mm -hmm. so there's not that kind of uh knee-jerk reaction to continue engaging with it that's why it's not an addictive drug that's a good point you guys couldn't pay me a million dollars to drink another cup of ayahuasca tonight yeah (laughs) Yeah, i think we're good for a while like if it feels good do more do more 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 you know i mean that's just how i am wired or used to be so yeah yeah, i agree even each night of ceremony it's like i'm kind of I'm dreading it is probably a bit heavy-handed, but I'm definitely not like, hey, can we start early? Like, where's that cup? You know, which yeah. is how I would have been before with other things. So yeah. I'm kind of like, oh God, it's almost six. Oh shit, you know, mm-hmm. I can just taste it already. You really and- have to build up your courage to go <laughs> yeah. and do it. And yeah. that's, it, there's no other, like, there's there's no drug like that where like, you know, you need to build up your courage to not do it. Mm-hmm. But with ayahuasca, it's like, okay, you need to get ready. You need to, it requires preparation. It requires effort before even going into it. And it's an event. It's an, it's a big thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to put your time in. You're in the maloca for hours, you know? And, and so it's not something, you know, you don't just slip back into that by drinking a little bit here and there, or, you know, it's, it's just not a, right. it's just not Wake a. Wake up with an ayahuasca hangover and hit a little on the yeah, nightstand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah no. well, you know, that's the weird thing about it too. Uh, and it doesn't so, even taste good either. So no, <laughs> no. That's subjective as subjective well. Totally. That's subjective You know, well. I didn't mm-hmm. mind it actually the first couple of times. I was like, what's the big deal? Because I remember Aubrey telling me like, oh man, I can taste it right now. It's so nasty. And I thought this kind of tastes like weak Jägermeister. It's kind of like molasses. Yeah. 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 Molasses vibe from but when I got yeah. the second night, I got quite, I felt really ill most of the night. And then I just, I had that taste. And then I purged for the first time out of the eight, you know, that I, or now it's eight, but however many that was. And I was like, oh, now I get it. Like once it comes back up, you realize, yeah, that's not pleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then putting it back down the next night, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, it, re- it had this visceral <laughs> it's memory. Of, it's the condition response. Yeah. You very, know, if um, like you eat a rotten hamburger, you're not going to want to have one for a while. Yeah. I got sick of a mushroom pizza when I was like eight and I've not eaten mushrooms except for psychedelic mushrooms since that day. But like, wow. yeah. you know, like pizza mushrooms, just the look of them reminds me of puking that one <laughs> night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the last thing I want to ask you guys is, you know, aside from someone who's had issues with addiction or alcoholism, um, is there, uh, even though it's not, you know, the ayahuasca is not habit forming, what about sort of, do people get kind of addicted to, the heightened experience, you know, where it's no longer about like really digging in and doing the work, but it's just chasing another kind of journey mm-hmm. as a means by which to escape, even though it's not done in an addictive way. Do you think that that is something that takes I think place? There's where- certainly some potential for that. Um, yeah. You know, and, mm-hmm. and you st- still have to be careful for, I think, not, um, not depending on ayahuasca to do all the work for you either mm-hmm. uh like relying on it as a crutch so say someone for example um comes 
is having some challenges in their life and comes to drink ayahuasca and then they have these this heightened experience and all this bliss and they come away with this like extended period of high dopamine levels and they Mm -hmm. go back to their life and you know things that seem brighter and are better but um perhaps uh they they don't put the work into catalyzing any real change in their lives mm-hmm. or or following through with integration or perhaps anything random happens that um that uh creates kind of like a, a negative experience in life again mm-hmm. and then as soon as they have this negative experience in life again then it's like chasing the dragon coming to drink medicine again to have those heightened experiences and expect that the medicine will solve all your all of your problems yeah. uh, just from drinking the medicine. I think there is some concern about that. Oh yeah, um, but it, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a very common thing at all. We mm-hmm. certainly, I mean, the odd time we'll see see people down here, mm-hmm. you know, multiple times a year. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that at all, though. There, mm-hmm. you know, there's there plenty healthy people and just working on sequentially building up their their lives you know and Mm -hmm. and and creating positive change in their lives um but you don't see you know i'm aware of people that have what could be considered some type of a psychological addiction to psychedelic experiences or or to to medicine but Mm -hmm. it's very rare yeah it's very very rare yeah, I see like a like a self-identification process for people. You know, it becomes their thing and they identify with it. Especially that's one th- what can happen coming into uh, like an ayahuasca community or whatever, or just even coming into ayahuasca and being opened up and it changes your life so much. And that can really spark that off as well, which is which is beneficial. But then you said chasing the experience, chasing the dragon. And uh that can be that can definitely be difficult for people getting caught in like a like a loop of that right and but also too who are they working with who are their guides who are their curanderos you know this stuff is usually the thing that gets nipped in the bud right away if you're working with the right people as well too so oh yeah wow i just thought of something for sure you know think of medicine community circles as well in different places i don't need to get into specifics there are people out there that uh, are more or less running these on a loop. You know, people keep coming back and it's like, is anything really beneficial going on other than it being what? More of like a jam session where you're drinking ayahuasca? Like, what is the point? Um, I find when people come to a, a center like this where it's more focused, that gets severely dissolved. It can be very confronting for that person too. But hey, great. Welcome to this other new world as well. Well, that's an interesting comment because, uh, you know, I I, uh, I lived in Brazil for a while and um, worked on a regular basis with the UDV, the Unial do Vegetal. That's right, right? yeah. And, uh, and, and was also connected to the Santo Daime there in, in a way that I understood what the actual community looked like mm-hmm. and how they actually operated on a longer term basis. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. That's how the religions work in Brazil. They have weekly meetups, um, sometimes bi-weekly, sometimes weekly, you know, but it is a community event. They have Mm -hmm. their own social group. They get together. They bring the kids during the day. They all kind of pitch in and work on 
building up their their temples and they contribute financially and you know the guys got the shovels out and they're they're like you know digging ditches and um and and all helping to build they have meals they have these big cookups together and um and then they drink medicine all together you know the place i was working with was like 70 or 80 people kind of out in the jungle like a big open air kind of barn and um and then afterwards everyone drives home yeah wow yeah and, and they Scary. do that like you know yeah i can't even walk home. <laughs> <laughs> you know like, like i'm in the maloka every yeah. day till like the sun's up dude because i just i look at this hill to my room and i just i just can't i just can't do it yeah 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 but Let that's alone drive yeah. i'm glad you guys took my my car away by the way too that <laughs> like i could have tried to sneak down there and drive myself home uh not wanting to climb up the hill yeah so that's interesting well shit guys man thank you uh, so much for sitting down for this conversation. I know mm. you've had a, a long week. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating. I'm just I'm just um, overwhelmingly pleased with this whole experience, and it's really a pleasure to get to know you guys and just see kind of the you know the ground floor of your mission here. And you're doing some really cool stuff. I'm awesome, very grateful man. to yeah. have had the opportunity, yeah. and I've had a really profound um, experience, of course. And I think one of the things I've really taken from this week is just you are not in control of what is going to happen after you drink that ayahuasca mm -hmm. and that was i found myself going okay i want to drink just this much and i want to have like a bunch of visuals for a while but then get some deep work done you know it's like mm -hmm. have these like outlines of how i think it's going to go and there were nights where it was very subtle one night when it was a little too much and it's just i, I started to see maybe on the third one i was like oh, okay no i really have to tune into my intuition in terms of like how much to drink too mm -hmm. and it was very specific in the last two nights like i want to say i nailed it but it was nailed for me and that it was like i got the experience i wanted and um you know because i found like i would have felt um like I wasted a night if I didn't have a really deep experience. Like, mm. you know, I don't want a subtle night. Like, fuck that. Yeah. And I, I just had to allow that. And what was really interesting was um, like last night that actually happened after the first cup, you know, I was like, mm, nothing really happened. And then I went up, I think that was like three quarters. And then I went up for another half a cup and made it through the whole ceremony. And, you know, there's that little like sparkly vibe but not the full thing and i thought you fucked up luke you should have had another full cup another mm. three corners you got a nada and then i saw my mind attaching to the expectation of how i want this to be and thankfully i saw that and i was able to really surrender into that and just i just was really like just praying to god like thy will be done you know and then speaking to uni and just saying hey Whatever's supposed to happen, I'm going to be cool with. And then, like, right when I was, I had fully let go of, like, how I wanted it, it was like, okay, we're ready now. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it was on. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that was, it's such a great lesson every time, you know, one way or the other mm -hmm. to just really, it really is about trusting the process and the, and the experience. And so I think that was one of the main things I, I mean, I had a lot of insights, but in terms of just, my relationship to the medicine and ceremony in general. It's like, okay, I'm starting to just scratch the surface of it knows the intelligence behind it. As you said the other day, it could be the medicine, your higher self, God, it's, it doesn't matter. Mm. 
what's in charge or who's in charge, but it's not your ass. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's been really neat to experience. And just, um, it's a great takeaway for if and when I, you know, choose to have another ceremony someday, which I anticipate I probably will. So I'm going to walk into it next time, having had a great experience here and just know the minute that shit hits my throat, it's just game on however game's supposed to be on. So. <laughs> yeah. Every time is new. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you guys uh, got anything you want to share social media-wise? You, you want people to look you up on Instagram or any of that stuff? I'm not really too concerned about that. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I do have an Instagram profile at Daniel C. Cleland. Um, you know, Soltara is, of course, at Soltara Healing Center. And we have our website, www.soltara.co. Um, toll-free 1-800 number. You can call and speak right away anytime during business hours. 1-800-397-1730. Sorry, 1-800-397-1730. And you know, Melissa or Sylvia will pick up and really great people to talk to if anyone's curious. And I think that is about it. Email inquiries to letgo at soltara.co. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. Anything for you, Todd? My full name, Todd Michael Roberts. That's it. Do okay. the hunting. No. Oh my God. I got it backwards. I forgot. My final question is, for some reason, when I have two guests that slips by, uh, you guys have taught me a ton this week and in this conversation. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life or your work that you might share with us? Ooh. <laughs> I could start with Tim Ferriss. Um, Mm. His uh, four-hour work week was the book that clued me in as to like, oh, this is why I hate jobs. Yeah, yeah, I mean that. Same here. There's one. Mm. Maybe Todd can rhyme one when I think of another. I just think of my family. Yeah, that's, that's number one. Yeah, my parents. Um, I'm blessed to have four parents. So yeah, all of them and, and my sister and, uh, and my niece and all my friends. Um, but influencers, man, I mean, one thing that comes up for me is, is somebody like Graham Hancock, you know, that was for a time, um, outside of the, the, the ayahuasca and medicine stuff like that, um, just for challenging the prevalent thought about things, even archaeology and what's really going on. But then he did that TED Talk as well too. And I've seen the influence of that in so many people as well, bringing them to the medicine work. Um, Shout out to Paul Stamets right now as well. I just met him last March over on uh, Orcas Island. And uh, who else? Well, we brought up Vipassana and I know that Goenka for me is who recently, he passed about four years ago at the age of 90, but um, he's somebody that uh, has definitely had an impact on me. The more I start to discover who he really was for sure. Yeah. And there's more. That's cool. just kind of it. That's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think sometimes I really stump people. And they're like, I thought it was over. Wait, yeah, why what? did I got to think? <laughs> yeah. I think oh, I'd have to give a shout out to my dad as well. He's, yeah. uh, he's actually deeply involved in, in Soltara. Yeah. And uh, I often find myself making decisions, especially relating to others, where I realize that I learned how to make this decision because that's what my dad would have done, you know, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to like 
oh, I've got it. You know, I've, I've got a, a girlfriend here and I'm kind of like taking care of their family a little bit because they've had some rough experiences with men over the years. So, you know, it's like, even if say we're having a fight or whatever, I've just like got like unwavering support for them. Even if we were to break up or whatever, I'm doing it like just because it feels like the right thing to do. And I, I feel like my dad's always been like that with us, you know, always, always stepping up, even if he, uh, even if we weren't, you know, on good terms back in my metal days, you know, he was just, <laughs> he was just always there and, and always, uh, stood up for his family and always, uh, backed us up and worked his ass off all those years to take care of us. So, mm. um, I learned a lot from him about that. Uh, mm. so yeah. And it's, it's a real honor now to have him working like with, with us, with, you know, working very closely, uh, with me on this project and, um, yeah. Awesome, yeah, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Love it, dude. Mm. Well, thanks, guys, for everything, and thanks for this conversation. Thank you, Luke. Much appreciated. Yeah, brother. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. When I first found the product made by today's sponsor, Comrade Socks, I was so stoked because I love wearing compression socks when I travel, and now, actually, just when I'm living my life, walking around, because I didn't realize how awesome they feel all the time. But I also kind of have my own fashion sense. You know, I worked in the fashion industry for a long time and I like to wear me some colorful, well-designed socks. So when I found out there was a company that merged both of those things, meaning some like medical grade socks that don't look medical, they look fashionable and help with the swelling and all the discomfort associated with being a human and having feet on the bottom of your body, I was super pumped. So if you want to check these out, here's what you do. Get over to comradesocks.com forward slash Luke. That's C-O-M-R-A-D socks. Comradesocks.com forward slash Luke. These are great for preventing swelling so you're more comfortable when you travel, sitting or standing for long periods, speeding up muscle recovery after workouts, and they come in a range of colors and styles that are actually dope looking. No one will even know you've got scientifically designed compression socks on under there. If you've got more circulation, you have more energized legs, less pain and swelling. So you're just living that good life. And they also use something called smart silver antimicrobial technology, which prevents odor causing bacteria. So your feet don't smell stank, which is a huge plus. So get over to comradesocks.com forward slash Luke. That's comradesocks.com forward slash Luke. Enter the code Luke at checkout and save 20%. And now back to the interview. It's now the eighth day in Costa Rica, my final night at Soltara, and the day after my fourth and last ceremony. And uh, I have to say, the experience last night was just absolutely divine and perfect and fun and funny and deep. And I'll do my best to give a recount of it, but I have to say, after... Uh, four days of ceremony this week. I'm pretty tired. I've been doing a lot of recording today. I did a couple of interviews and I don't know how much mental capacity I have left. Um, it's interesting though for as 
altered as your state of consciousness becomes for many, many hours late into the night or early morning, rather, on ayahuasca, it's really strange that there's no hangover. You actually feel... I mean, now I'm a little spaced just because I had a very active day and did a lot of kind of work and whatnot. Um, but it, it's really strange. It's not like if you take drugs or drink alcohol or something like that where you're diminished the next day because of the effects. It actually really makes me most more focused and calm and feeling very high dopamine and just kind of lit up. So uh, despite being a bit spacey, I'm quite happy and it's been a successful mission so i'll see if i can kind of reel in the experience last night it's it's always so hard to explain these things because in the moments in which these realizations are taking place it just it seems so much more profound and as i've said before even while it's happening i can project into the future of me trying to record a podcast segment about it and it just pales in comparison to the depth of understanding that represents itself in these ceremonies uh, what happened last night though was that uh, I was less fixated on getting the dose right uh, because it's really up to you in this particular ceremony the facilitators aren't going to sort of shove it down your throat they're going to ask you how much you want and the cups here are kind of double-sized cups, and so the one night that I had, I think, what was possibly too much, or at least the night that I was quite uncomfortable for some of the time, uh, I think I had like two full cups, which is almost like four regular cups, <laughs> which I didn't realize at the time. Someone told me that today, so no wonder I had a rough night that night. But last night, I really tuned into myself, into my heart, my intuition, and beforehand just thought, okay, what's the number here for the first one? And it was three quarters of a cup. And then I went and, you know, to my mat and the ceremony began. The Icarus were being sung, which I still have the hardest time pronouncing that. I think in Spanish it would be Icaros, but everyone says Icaros in English. So whatever it is, it's the beautiful singing that takes place. Uh, by the maestros during the ceremony. And so the songs go in their sequence and that's all quite beautiful. And I just really sit and meditate and, uh, you know, I'm just quite still. And we had this, of course, you know, the customer yin yoga kind of breathing and very subtle stretching beforehand. So I was really present in my body. My mind was very still, very quiet and just very little thought activity going on, which is a beautiful way to start an ayahuasca ceremony because it's just it's like you have this very solid foundation of feeling centered and that centeredness carried on through most of the experience at any rate uh, i don't know how much time goes by because time just goes into the abyss and there's this liquidity to the aura in the room and this very specific stillness and so i really just sank into that and then when it and it, it you know was feeling i would say slightly activated but not in a full experience and then when the opportunity arose to go take the second cup again i had to really tune in and not get greedy and be like yeah give me a full one i want to really freak out and you know have this intense experience but i also i also knew that i wanted to carry it over into 
a place where I could do some more deep work. And so when I got up there, it was like, I think my request was just under half a cup. <laughs> and that's, that's the intuition I had. And, and Jocelyn was pouring the medicine and I was watching it just fill up. She's going very slowly. It's kind of thick, this stuff, you know, so it pours out slowly if someone's being deliberate in the way in which they're pouring it. And so I was like, right there, right there, right there. Stop. And just shot it back. And, um, and I went back to my mat and just kind of kept in that really slow, calm process. And, you know, nothing was really happening in any meaningful way until kind of right after the last song was sung. And then there was another period of quiet. And then... I hear Todd go, okay, brothers and sisters, that is the end of the ceremony. And when that happens, it just means that the maestros are leaving and they're leaving and everyone's just kind of on their own. You can hang out in there, sleep, have an experience, go back to your room, whatever. And right as he said that, I was like, oh shit, here it comes. We have liftoff. Houston, <laughs> we have entered deep space nine and it just started to really take me to this beautiful place. And as I sat there and allowed it to, oh, sort of take over my consciousness, I was again just really focusing up until that point and during that point of just surrender and letting go and not giving in to the mind's desire to control the experience and determine how intense or not it was to be and what realizations I was to have and all of that I really just kept surrendering and so I just kept saying I surrender I trust you and just really sinking into the will of what was supposed to happen and it's really it's, I have so many goofy moments on ayahuasca it's like it's a real trickster this the energy of this particular plant combo and a lot of funny things come to me and they're hilarious at the time and even sometimes the next day i don't know if they'll be hilarious to you but they certainly are to me in that moment because you'd be in the middle of this very rich visceral experience and then these jokes will just come into your head and um or you know at least something i perceived to be funny so the first thing that happened was i just i kind of was laying there with my arms open and then all of a sudden the journey song open arms pops in my head which is not a song i'm particularly a fan of and i was like you gotta be kidding me like journeys in my goddamn journey now <laughs> it's just like things like that and these are only like a couple snippets that i happen to remember i mean these go on non-stop and every day after ceremony everyone's like wow you're really laughing a lot last night I go, wow i was i remember a couple of funny moments, but um, there are many more that get unrecorded uh, here on the podcast or in my awareness at all. They're just uh, something that takes place during the experience. But uh, I had thought before that that second round kind of kicked in. I was I was getting into a little bit of uh, anxiousness, thinking, "Oh man, I hope I didn't get a dud. I don't want to have like a." soft weak sauce experience on my last night and I had to just kind of let that go and then as I started going into that experience I really went back to that kind of heart place and uh, the sense of wanting to really learn how to become fulfilled within myself and to really take care of myself and just mind my heart and that you know my my sort of inner child um, which is so embarrassing to even talk about and put in that framework but i don't know how else to say it it's just like me as a little kid 
is still part of the me that is within the man, you know? And so for me, it's just, there's always this tracing back to the root cause of things. And as I was looking back, not in a painful way, but just in an inquisitive way at some of the abuse that I suffered as a very young child, uh, which is quite common in an ayahuasca experience for me. There's always this healing of these early wounds and things like that. And that was something I spent a lot of time in in my uh, prior um, ceremonies earlier this year. So it wasn't like so much going into that. It was just observing some of the reactions or patterns that were set in place in my persona as a result of that experience. And what I could really see, and this occurred to me in the, in the ceremonies in January as well, was that you know, my innocence was really stolen at that point in my life. And, um, you know, it's not to be melodramatic. It's just, it's just what happened. I mean, it was the net effect of just, wow, I'm not like a little kid anymore now. I'm, I've been somehow changed um, and not, <laughs> not in a positive sense. But as I started looking at innocence, what is that? And it's like, oh, it wasn't just my innocence. It was my inner sense of who I am. And because at that time I was five or six, I was just starting to develop my own um, felt sense of being and my own personality. And really, you know, from zero to 12 is kind of when you become you and you work with your ego being developed and you're in this theta state of being very programmable and you're picking up on all sorts of cues on how to behave and where you fit in and who you are from your caretakers and from your tribe and your, your culture and community. And so because that inner sense or innocence was not developed or in some cases diminished, uh, I think I've carried a lot of that into adulthood. And so it went back to that place before where my heart is where my home is and that's that sense of what it's like inside of who I am and that that is where my security, my strength my wisdom my self-care, my self-love that's where all of that is sort of housed as an adult and so although I couldn't stand up for myself in many cases as a kid when boundaries were crossed and I was exposed to negative energies and uh, various types of abuse and neglect, etc. Um, I started to see that now as a man, I can actually go back and forgive myself as a kid for not having the power or the ability or the authority to take care of myself then. But that now, even though that child still lives within me because I'm, I'm still Luke's story that was developing at that time, uh, there's also a grown-ass man <laughs> that's been developing this whole time as well and that I don't need to... Um, operate from that place of being an afraid little boy anymore in my adult life in, you know, in relationships with other people that I have now, of relationships of whatever nature they might be, friends, family, lovers, business, all of that. 
because as I've explained before, I have seen a pattern in my adult life where I've gotten into situations where I'm sort of abandoning myself and not taking care of myself and not being being true to myself. And so I had the realization that it's really important that I find that inner sense of self and find my home and my heart and begin to stand up for myself. And so then there was this kind of thinking about taking a stand and what does that mean and just standing up, you know, it's like putting your chest up and just going, I fucking deserve to have a good life and to be happy and to be treated by myself first and foremost with respect and kindness and uh, caringness. And as I thought about this stand-up, I thought, yeah, it's like I need to, I need to do stand-up. I was like, what stand-up comedy be a stand-up comedian? And then as the jokester always does, comes in with these word plays on me all the time. It's just hilarious. Um, it's like, no, not a stand-up comedian, a stand-up for median. <laughs> stand-up for me. That's who I need to stand up for, stand-up for median. And there was, of course, just a bunch of silliness around that play on words, but it really had a deeper meaning. And then I saw how uh, at times because of those early experiences and the abject fear that I encountered when I was activated into this fight or flight response to some of my early negative experiences that that fight or flight response still lives within me because those grooves are cut in my consciousness or in my brain and those neural pathways are built. When A happens, B is the reaction. And I thought, how can I, how can I alter that? How can I repair that? You know, what, what can be done to heal that? Or can God or spirit heal that so that that's not the case anymore? Because I'm not that afraid, timid little boy anymore. I'm just not. But how does it still exist in me in certain scenarios? And how can I prevent myself from going back into that cut groove? And so part of the realization of that was to see that what my reaction is, is not so much anymore to fight because I used to have a lot of rage and anger inside. And so I just would just rage and just, oh, I just was so pissed off at the world um, when I was feeling threatened or activated or triggered like that. And I think my reaction now is to more freeze or to hide, you know, and then it was having this realization that, God, in order to stand up for myself, I've got to stop hiding. I can't just disappear into the shadow and withhold elements of who I am and how I feel and what I need to say and what I need to do to stand up and take care of myself. And then I think because we're in the jungle, I just thought of like hiding and then the chupacabras came into my awareness. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the fable of chupacabras, but it's kind of a Latin American folklore, uh, similar to perhaps Bigfoot, right? Chupacabras, he's the goat sucker. He hides in the woods, he hides in the jungle and eats cows and goats and whatnot, but he's, he's hidden, he's sneaky, you know? And I thought, yeah, man, it's, not, it's like I have these thoughts, but they're being told to me. It's not really from me. It's just from somewhere, something. And I thought, man, I got to stop being Chupacabras. And then, and then the jokester said, Luke, don't be Luca Cabras. 
Don't be Luca Cabras. Come out of hiding. Represent. You know, show yourself and take care of yourself. And so, um, you know, that was kind of going back to the roots of that and then seeing some of the manifestation. But still, okay, so... So I need to stand up for myself. I need to make sure that I'm heard. I need to not abandon myself. I need to be there for myself. I need to be the steward of my own sense of safety and um, autonomy and just be my own person, be my own man. And, you know, talking about these things publicly on a podcast is kind of weird but when i'm in this experience and i've committed to myself and to listeners of the show that i'm going to document this experience with as much authenticity and vulnerability and realness as i can muster there's just no other way to explain these things i mean this is how i explain it in our group processing when all the people are here so it's it's in and of itself right now this act of me sharing these experiences with you is really part of that finding my voice uh, because in in those early experiences in life in which i was scarred it's it's like i couldn't talk it's it's as if you're in a dream and you're you know you're in a kind of a horror show of a dream and you try to scream and nothing comes out that's the sense that i had in many situations it was just like i just froze and didn't know how to take care of myself and so Part of finding my voice is really having a career in which I use my voice and I express myself unabashedly and give few to zero fucks about what anyone thinks about it, including someone that might listen to this podcast and go, oh, this guy's nuts. Or what a baby or you know, whatever my fear of judgment might be, but it's, it's really all in service to that becoming whole and complete and just owning who and what I am and everything that I've been through and and being able to steer my future decisions and life experience into new unexplored ways of being and relating. And it seems in this process that I've had here that going back and retracing and really seeing the manifestations of these different events in life and how they've become ingrained in who I am to some degree. Um, they're not ingrained in who I truly am in, in the sense of my true self or higher self, but they become ingrained in my personality and my thought patterns and my ego. And so this brought me to this next realization. And this was like when I went really into, uh, God, there's just this, this really, and anyone that's, done plant medicines knows this zone but it's like this multi-dimensional kind of womb space it's this quantum space where you're really kind of in almost this dark space and everything slows way way down and you really start to see the minutiae of your psyche and in that very still, sort of milky, slow, but deep place that I was able to access, I was able to start to go into my actual brain and start to execute this psychic surgery within my own brain on this 
quantum level. I mean, on a really tiny, 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 micro, micro level. And the surgery involved going in and manually, energetically at least, manually going in and rearranging synapses and neural connections and what those connections were were the memories in the hippocampus and I could have the the, <laughs> the brain anatomy wrong so any neuroscientists listening please feel free to write into the show and correct me where I'm wrong but it's not so much the names of the parts that need to be right it's just where the activations were happening in there and where the surgery was taking place and why. But I have this storage bank in the hippocampus of these rather ancient memories, and some could even be before this lifetime, but certainly some in this lifetime, where there's a connection from that memory to the amygdala. And when the amygdala senses an outside threat that is somewhat familiar and related to a real threat from the past in which it had to protect me by activating the limbic system in that fight or flight response by flooding my bloodstream with cortisol and adrenaline it experiences new experiences that are not a threat say um, an experience where I feel the need to confront myself uh, confront a situation or protect myself or evade danger of some kind even though that threat is not real it could be a, a letter from the irs in the mailbox it could be someone parking too close to my car and i feel like i want to get out and confront that situation it could be a disagreement with a romantic partner or a business partner it could be somebody treating me unfairly in a business deal and something feels shady and i need to really nip that in the bud and have a discussion with someone that could be uncomfortable that amygdala goes back into that memory bank as a point of reference and there's a connection there between something that was real and a true threat but now that I'm in a situation that is not real and not a true threat it could even be just a projection or a fantasy of a negative nature a negative energy fantasy in my mind about what I think is about to transpire in some sort of conflict or something and then it dumps those chemicals again in my system for no reason i don't need to fight or, f or flee or fight or freeze that response isn't necessary i have my faculties about me and i can act appropriately without being emotionally crippled by that fight or flight response so as i went in and started undoing these connections I also began to communicate with those different parts of my brain from me, my, my soul, to the physical brain and explaining to the amygdala that it's unnecessary for it to be hypervigilant and for it to be constantly on the lookout for perceived threats and that when it has the habitual retrieval of old memories of hurts and harms that it needs to disconnect from those old memories permanently and resist its temptation to flood my body with those stress chemicals 
And also, in addition, I gave it huge props and much heartfelt, sincere gratitude for the times it has tried to protect me when it ended up essentially poisoning me with unnecessary stress chemicals because I know it was trying to protect me and keep me alive and keep me safe. And I also gave it express permission to become activated when there is a legitimate threat, like stepping out in front of a bus or, you know, about to get in an accident or, you know, in a position where I could make a grave error of some kind and I need to activate and move quickly. I need that adrenaline. I need that cortisol because that's what's going to give me the power and the energy to remove myself from a situation or to take care of business in whatever form might be needed in that moment. And so it's not a matter of shutting the brain down because I need it. It's, it's still what helps me stay safe and able to stay on the planet and live out my days. Uh, but it's, it's overworking. It's working too hard. And that's what needed to be put to rest. And so that was a really incredible way to orient myself to another part of myself that has been seemingly acting independently, innocently, trying to help me, but ultimately hindering my ability to have a rich and full experience of life and hindering me from being able to go back and stand up for myself, to take care of myself, to honor myself, to say no when I need to say no when I need to step up and really deal with a situation with strength and um, courage, and bravery, maturity. That little boy was still hiding back there, wanting to you know, not, not deal with it, not to feel uncomfortable. And that's where people pleasing and all these kind of things come in for me. And so going in and doing that work, uh, one can only hope that that work is real. You you don't know. I'll have to find out. Maybe in a few days when I get to the airport, you know, I'll, I'll get triggered and we'll see how that amygdala reacts when, you know, my flight's canceled and I want to get all pissed off or feel sorry for myself or overreact to a situation, whatever that might be. However, I do have a strong sense that something very profound did happen last night in all the ways uh, in which I just described. And um, it can be my hope that much of that change will manifest itself as I step out from here back into the integration process, which will be taking the next few days here in Costa Rica as I take a little Christmas vacation a couple hours from here in a beach town called Santa Teresa, from which I might be doing a couple reports if something interesting happens or this could be the end we'll see after that part of the experience um, i went back and for some reason was kind of taken back to my parents as kids and even going back to my grandparents and just you know feeling love and compassion for my parents and some of the things that i know they went through when they were younger and you know seeing the same kind of patterns that i just described in my life and their life and there was just a real sense of deep love and gratitude for them and you know they've not had it easy either and they've they've come out on top and they're amazing people and they've been really good to me and I've learned so much and so much of the wonderful things that I appreciate about my own character 
were not only inherited from them, but also imparted by them consciously as I grew up and even into my adult life. And so I just, I just felt a profound love and understanding and compassion for, uh, for my folks. And um, that was kind of the end of the night. I, I was in there all night. I was the last one. I'm always the last one in the room. Just like when I used to party, I was always the last motherfucker at the party. And, um, you know, this morning I kind of came out of this whole experience. It was probably 7 a.m. It was light out. The sun was shining in. And I was like, where is everyone? Oh, my God, it's the next day. And I wouldn't say that I was exactly sleeping. Um, I was just... I was in this process that went on for God knows how many hours. And I just, you know, gave you a 29-minute and 30-second boil down of what took many, many hours. And there was a lot more to it, but that's the general gist of it. So it's uh, it's getting pretty late here, and I've got neighbors. That's why my voice is kind of whispery. I'm not trying to be uh, <laughs> melodramatic about it. It's... Um, it's just, I need to be a little quiet right now. And uh, lucky for us and my neighbors upstairs, that's the end of this report. So it's with much gratitude and heartfelt appreciation that I was able to have this experience and share it with you. And there will be more to come. <laughs> あれでめかやのかなかかいきかのかのかいそんあけあばのかやみよださまこむぴむぴかいきむぴよたなかやだまかやあばのだまかやあばのあこんあけかやけだまかやあばの that wraps up the field report portion of this episode. Here I sit back home in Los Angeles. It's a nice rainy Sunday at the time of this recording. And as I put together these tracks and compiled these narrative serial two episodes, uh, I realized that there's a bit missing, and that bit missing is an update on what's transpired since I got home and the whole integration period. Now, after I left Soltara, I decided to spend a few days in beautiful Santa Teresa, a beach town a couple hours away from their retreat center. And honestly, while I was there, I had every intention of recording a follow-up to the retreat, but I just couldn't bring myself to bust out the audio equipment and make it happen. I remember being in my Airbnb and walking by my AV road case and going, Luke, you should record a follow-up, you know, like kind of put a bow on this experience. And I just, I couldn't even open it. It was just, <laughs> I was just spent. I needed sun, beach, hikes through the jungle. I went and found some spring water. Uh, I went everywhere around that whole area in my little hoopty ass rental car. By the way, if you ever fly into 
San Jose, Costa Rica to get to Soltara. Well, there's two ways you can get there. One is via, you know, a shuttle. They come pick you up at your hotel. It's, it's, it's kind of an arduous journey, which I'll report on uh, later this week on Friday when I do the comparison between the two centers that I've been to. Uh, so you can do that and just save yourself all the drama. But I rented a car so that I could cruise around in Santa Teresa afterward and just chill. And uh, the roads there are rough, son. So um, I would recommend if you do rent a car, get a four-wheel drive. I mean, I can't believe I didn't like wreck this car. Don't tell anyone at Enterprise, but uh, I was probably not supposed to drive that car on damn near roads. Anyway, but I did want to give an update. It would honestly take way too long to describe the takeaways and changes that have taken place in the integration period since the retreat. But I can say that there has been a profound change in my connection to others, my capacity for intimacy, and an absolutely renewed commitment to human connection. I've also uh, very recently fallen in love. I'm in a wonderful relationship, and um, that's definitely in small part, if not fully uh, able to be attributed to this experience and just the immense opening of my heart. Uh, you'll be hearing more about that later, I'm sure, uh, which is going to be funny because there's episodes uh, that are coming out after this <laughs> where I was still... Anyway, I don't know. It's funny. The timelines of my shows when I relate to personal you know, circumstances in my life don't make sense because I record things. Sometimes they don't come out for three months later and all that. So anyway, not that you probably care. The point is I've really done a lot of healing on myself and my heart. And I think after this trip, man, I just... I really just landed back in my heart in such a profound way. And my capacity for self-love and self-forgiveness was just, oh man, I went so deep into that with this medicine and came back with just this uh, two-sided resolve. One, to just really honor and respect myself in terms of my boundaries and the type of treatment that I require from people in my inner circle that I'm close to, just the amount of self-respect that I was able to cultivate and self-love and the non-negotiable requirement of how I want to be treated and also the non-negotiable requirement of how I hold myself to how I treat others. And I think for me, um, I'm sure many people would disagree, um, especially those that feel as though I've not treated them well. <laughs> but I find it really easy to be loving and kind to other people, generally speaking, even people that you know are total dicks at times, uh, because I just get it. I've been in a lot of pain in my past life, and I know what it's like to suffer and, and how that tends to um, bleed off on people. But what's been more difficult for me historically is just honoring myself and loving myself. And I'm getting a lot better at doing that, which feels good. And so that's probably the main takeaway is just like, wow, I'm really able to stay in my heart and feel so connected to my higher power. And all of that equates to really getting very clear again and reaffirming what my role and mission in this lifetime is. And that is very simply to continue to grow spiritually, to heal in all ways imaginable. And in so doing, hopefully make a meaningful contribution to humankind and inspire others to do the same for themselves through this very podcast and you know speaking appearances and an upcoming book that I'm beginning to work on, et cetera. So it's just like, I know why I'm here. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, I feel very aligned to the people in my life and I'm committed to expanding my network and making some new friends. And that's already started to happen. Um, as I've talked about before at various times on the show, um, I think 
because what I do for work is quite social. I mean, I'm around a lot of people doing the interviews and things like that and living in Los Angeles and traveling a lot. I meet some amazing people, but uh, because I live a, a somewhat remote up in the Hollywood Hills, um, there's many days that go by where I don't talk to or see any other people. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy. I don't, I'm not bothered by it. I don't feel particularly lonely. I'm, I'm, I keep myself um, entertained. And if I'm too lonely, I'll just live stream and start talking to people online. You know, if I can't get anyone over here. I've got my dog Cookie and it's all good, but um, I realize I've grown and my friends have grown, uh, guys that I've been buddies with for years and years and some are married and some have moved further away and we're all kind of growing up and, um, you know, I'm I'm just really seizing opportunities to spend time with people and make it meaningful and make it count and um, many of them are new people. I've got some great new friends and some of them will probably end up on the show and as I said, a wonderful uh, woman in my life now and... Uh, there's just a lot of internal changes um, that have taken place that are manifesting now externally. And so that's, I think, what I've really noticed since I returned from this journey. I have also had the very fortuitous opportunity since to partake in three peyote ceremonies. Now, needless to say, you can look forward to an episode dedicated to those such ceremonies very soon because, of course, I recorded it, you know, like I record everything shamelessly. And I mean, not during the ceremony, but just around it and an interview with the facilitators, etc. For now, I'll just say that the experience of peyote is so different uh, than ayahuasca. And I'm someone who's never up until last year used any sort of plant medicines or psychedelics intentionally. Back in, uh, in my former life of rock and roll self-destruction living on the streets of Hollywood. <laughs> I did a lot of LSD. I mean, as a teenager too, a lot of mushrooms, but that was really to escape, right? To just get out of my head and out of my body and out of my mind and world and to numb whatever I had going on. Uh, whereas my intention in these experience now is not to escape, but very much so to inscape. In other words, to go inward and heal rather than to escape because I'm not in as much abject pain as I once was by leaps and bounds. Um, and so there's nothing to escape from. I'm happy. I love my life. It's amazing. I'm sober. Everything's great. You know? I mean, you have your lessons, you have your, your lumps that you take along the way, but I don't sit around like hating my life ever. And if I do, it's only for a couple minutes and I pull my head out of my ass and I get right with God and I, I, I sort myself out, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, walking into the peyote ceremonies, I was expecting something kind of similar to mushrooms maybe, uh, in their effect, but uh, very, very different. And again, we don't have time here to go into it, but um, that has really compounded the experience at Soltara. And I mean, between those two, between the four ayahuasca ceremonies and the three back-to-back, -back, essentially, peyote ceremonies here um, in the unnamed country from which I'm recording this, you know, because peyote is illegal. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> I'm just thinking about, sometimes I have to remember that I forget like everyone's not down, like the DEA is not down with, you know, the Lifestylist podcast and uh, such hijinks. In Costa Rica, you're cool, but here, it's, you know, there's different rules, laws, et cetera. So I, I'm reminding myself of that. But uh, the peyote has been a perfect complement and follow-up to my time at Soltara. And 
I think to summarize the lessons of all of that, I'll just say that when it's all said and done, the only thing that truly matters is for me, my relationship with God and the expression of love that God makes possible through me. That's it. If I'm doing that, I've won the game. And, um, you know, that's, that's a game that I think one can never quite perfect, but it's a really great goal to have. And with that, I will conclude this report and thank you all for listening and sharing this very transformative journey with me. Well, we made it through this cosmic adventure, guys. Thank you so much for joining me for my entire journey at Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. I want to give a shout out to those guys and thank them for uh, such an incredible experience. And I will never be the same. As I mentioned earlier, I'm doing a Rhythmia and Soltara side-by-side comparison bonus show on Friday. Again, the spoiler, there's no ayahuasca center that I've been to, well, there's only been two, is better than the other. They're both uniquely awesome. On Friday's show, the idea there is just to answer questions that I've gotten from so many people just about the facilities, the timing, the location, the travel, the ceremonies, the traditions, all of that. They're both awesome and they're both very different. And I think depending on what your goals are, the type of personality you have, your level of experience, there's something to be said for each one. And so uh, due to very popular demand, that'll be happening on Friday. So make sure you're subscribed to the show so that you catch that action as well. And if for some weird reason you heard this episode, but you didn't hear part one, of the Sultara shows, you definitely want to go back and listen to that so that it all makes sense because it's going to be a very fragmented story if you did it backwards. I'm trusting that you didn't. On Tuesday, I'll be back with John Wineland talking about love. Ain't talking about love. Remember that? David Lee Roth, Van Halen. What? What? Let's thank our sponsors. Comrade Socks. Dude, when I went to uh, Costa Rica, I rocked my Comrade Socks on those flights. You know it. I don't do any flying or even long road trips without the Comrade Socks. But what I didn't realize about compression socks, because I discovered them a couple years ago and they're freaking amazing for flying uh, because of the inflammation and lack of circulation, etc. But they are also super rad for any time you have to walk around or stand up and just day-to-day life. They like open up this whole new world for me. And the Comrade socks actually look really cool too. If you took your shoes off, no one would know you were, mar- you were wearing a full-on medical grade compression socks. They, it turns out they're really good for you. And they make your feet feel awesome. In fact, I'm wearing some like fake ass just cotton socks right now. I'm reminded I need to get my hands on a few more pairs of these so I have uh, clean ones in rotation all the time because they just feel really good. I'm definitely going to wear them every time I do public speaking because my feet um, get hella tired. So if you want to get yourself some compression socks, go to comradesocks.com. And use the code Luke for 20% off. That's comradesocks.com. And if it sounds weird to you, just trust me, like order one pair and you'll see what I mean. It's freaking amazing. They're the best thing ever. Uh, Then if you want to be less gassy and bloaty and gross in your tummy, I'll send you over to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. In fact, those probiotics would be pretty awesome after a string of ayahuasca ceremonies because uh, your stomach can get pretty jacked. You know, it's even gnarlier for me than ayahuasca is the peyote. Woo, child. Oh, man. I could have used some Thrive Probiotic to get the balance back after that. 
Uh, again, upcoming episodes on that whole experience coming up. But uh, seriously, though, thriveprobiotic.com forward slash Luke. The code there is Luke15, and that gets you 15% off. I take one of these every single day. That's it. Boom. Non-negotiable. And my gut is happy, and um, I'm not all bloated and gross anymore, which is really nice. B products. Let me see. How do I use those? Beekeepers Naturals. Uh, how does it relate to this trip? Oh, duh. I have my little spray bottle of propolis and I always take that on the plane with me because it's a really strong antibacterial and antiviral. Comes right out of the bees' little butts. I don't know where it comes from, but it's it's magical medicine. And I take that whenever I travel uh, as a means by which to not get sick, especially when I'm going to take ayahuasca, which can often make you sick as well. I don't want to be double sick, like rolling there with the flu. You know what I'm saying. Beekeepersnaturals.com. Beekeepersnaturals.com. I've been using bee products. You know, it's funny. I think they might be the superfood I've been using the longest that just occurred to me. I remember going back, I'm talking 1989-90 is when I first got into health, which is ironic as fuck because... Um, during that period, I was also using copious amounts of illicit drugs and um, alcohol. But I knew that I was wrecking myself, so I always would check myself. And I'd go to these little smoothie stands in Hollywood. We had these little like smoothie juice stands back in the day. And I think they were kind of holdovers from the 70s. You know, there were some health nuts in Hollywood and you'd have one, you know, kind of off Hollywood Boulevard. I remember there's one, um, Hollywood and Vine. It's long since been bulldozed. But I would always go get these smoothies, which looking back were like swag. They're full of bananas and sugar. And I probably wouldn't have those smoothies now. It's like equivalent of a a healthy Coca-Cola. But one thing I would always do is add the little booster of the bee pollen because I learned how good it was for you. And I used to always crush the bee pollen. And I've been doing it ever since. Bee pollen is uh, really high in bioavailable copper, which is awesome, especially in a world where we have a lot of iron toxicity and a huge imbalance, most of us between um, iron and copper and all of the various minerals, etc., I learned about that um, specifically from a guy who will remain unmentioned because he turned into a psycho. <laughs> but anyway, it's a completely other story. The point is, bee products are really good for you and so is honey, man. I um, When I come over and I give people peak tea, which is another one of my sponsors, not for this episode, episode but uh, when I give people peak tea, I uh, if they want it sweetened, I use the Beekeepers Naturals Super Duper Honey that has the propolis and, uh, and uh, bee pollen and all that stuff in it. It's awesome. It mixes really well in tea. So at beekeepersnaturals.com, you can use the code lifestylist and save 15% off. So I think that's it. And uh, just remember, you can find everything I always recommend at lukestray.com forward slash store, including all of our sponsors, because this is literally the stuff laying around my house. That's the stuff I use every day. So I'm very happy to support those brands. I'm really happy if you do as well, because that's how I pay my team here. And keep all these trips going and uh, keep producing the content that I produce that I trust that you enjoy. And if you did enjoy it, the best way you can support is just to send it to a friend, man. Text or email, screenshot. A lot of people like to post in their Instagram stories. I would say about 80% of the time I will repost your Instagram story, especially if it's creative and fun and has weird little gifs or gifs or whatever the hell they're called in there. So um, keep it up. Keep supporting the show. I truly appreciate you. And thank you for following my my adventures through 
my own desire to elevate my consciousness and to enlarge my spiritual life and to grow and evolve and move ever so steadily toward my own enlightenment. It's a great pleasure to share the journey with you. Thank you.